VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, August the 15th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26, so some pretty intense rain showers earlier this morning, and we're told that there's a distinct possibility of some thunderstorms in parts of the province today. So given the weather conditions, of course, you drive accordingly. want to just reiterate just how incredible it is what Holy Cross and the women's side has done. So won their eighth straight Jubilee trophy, now off to Halifax in October to compete in the National Jubilee, and of course, they're defending champions. And on that note, you know, every time I've mentioned the Women's World Cup of Soccer, you know, immediately people scoff at what no one cares. Well, some people probably do care. There's a lot of people in the stands and I would imagine many members of Holy Cross and the Feelings and other women soccer players and men soccer players or soccer enthusiasts around the world are watching. Wild game this morning. So Spain beats Sweden 2-1. to one, uh, Scored the winner in the last minute of the game. But interestingly enough, all three goals in the 2-1 to one clash were scored in the last nine minutes of the match. So pretty wild stuff there. All right, a couple of shout-outs to some locals, uh, some local athletes. There's a young fellow, 16-year-old Sawyer LeBlanc. He won a 3K race at the National Legion Invite in Sherbrooke event, uh, a Sherbrooke event over the weekend. He's been crushing it and setting national standards for his age group in the 1500 and the 3000 meters, so it looks like he's got a bright future. No question the NCAA will come looking for Sawyer LeBlanc to compete for their university in years to come. Congratulations to him. And also, good luck, good on you for the boys under 15 team NL off to the Nationals this past weekend, came home with a silver medal. So congratulations to them as well. And in immigration news, it was on this date in 1620 when the Mayflower launched from a pier in Southampton, England. It was their second attempt to travel to the shores of Plymouth Rock, Plymouth Rock, so that was 1620. Okay, I know it, I get it. It's still summer holidays for the teachers and students and administrators and all the rest. But we're going back to school on September the 2nd, or the 6th. want to go back to a report in 2019 that I leaned on pretty heavily at the time, and I'm not so sure how the government has digested the numbers that were brought forward by then-child and youth advocate Jackie Lake Kavanaugh. And this was about absenteeism. In September of 2019, the absentee rate was about 6%, 2021 around 9%. And we know that with the schools opening and closing and some concerns and some illness circulating throughout the K-12 population, absenteeism was a huge concern throughout the pandemic and even prior to. So the report that Ms. Lake Kavanaugh brought forward in 2019 was very clear. It was about the concept of chronic absenteeism. The report she released at that point said about 10% or 6,600 students missed more than a month of school on average. A significant problem and a complex problem. So whether it be understanding how and why children are missing school and what can be done about it, because it could be travel concerns, it could be family violence, it could be addiction, it could be a variety of things. But the problem is we just don't know. And without understanding why children are absent, it's hard to address it. So yes, some of the travel concerns may be indeed aided with the removal of the arbitrary 1.6 kilometers over the course of the next two years. And yes, we're not forgetting about the high school issues and all the rest of it. If you want to take it on, let's go. So the key here is to understand what happens to a child who's chronically absent. You know, have we had a new relationship between the Department of Education 
maybe the Department of Health Community Services because we're told that your level of education is one of the clear social determinants of health. Do we understand what that might mean for interaction with the criminal justice system? And whatever the government ministerial portfolio may be impacted by this. Because here's the troubling reality. Based on global research, if you're chronically absent in grade six, 75% of those students will not finish high school. Now, we can indeed talk about opportunities where maybe not having your high school might be available, but those opportunities are shrinking in this competitive global marketplace. So what have we done with that information? It would seem to me that that's a big deal. If 75% of chronically absent grade sixers never finish high school, then you know what that's going to mean. So have we, are we going to track them? And it's not to invade their privacy, to come up with an idea how many of them may indeed, say, for instance, have full reliance on the social safety net. What sort of job opportunities were they able to take advantage of? And there are potentially opportunities, but those numbers will not be what they were decades ago. So, you know, these are important pieces of work that we see by the Auditor General, the Child and Youth Advocate. They answer to the House of Assembly. So is there an update from any of the ministers of education from 2019 through today on what we've done to deal with this? When speaking with the most recent Minister of Education, Crystalline Howell, uh, a couple of weeks back on this program, talking about the fact that the government has not wrapped their mind around even the generalized concept of learning loss throughout the, throughout the pandemic. And now add to it this absenteeism issue, and I think it's a big deal. So again, just to highlight the reddest of all red flags, 75% of chronically absent grade six students don't finish high school. That has got to be something that we have to figure out. And I heard a, a story with Jerry Lynn Mackey on the program earlier on the VOC Morning Show talking to Nancy Snedden at the at BDO. You know, we know that there's going to be many families struggling to come up with back-to-school supplies. And she makes a good point here. And these are some things that, you know, maybe should be added more and more to the curriculum in school when the age is appropriate is things like financial literacy. Good point, Nancy. So while trying to shop for back to school, and most children, of course, will want what their buddies are wearing, the kind of backpacks their buddies have, some of the other odds and sods and sweatshirts or hoodies, whatever. But when times are tight for some families, maybe it's an opportunity to, for your child to have a real firm understanding of just how money works and maybe having to make choices so that you can get everything required to have your backpack full of all the necessities to go back to school. So they're just one of those areas where, you know, that's a reality. At some point in the very near future, for children, especially in high school or even junior high, is having a better grasp on financial literacy issues or matters might be an excellent idea. So I'm glad she made that point. All right. I don't know who brought it up yesterday on the show, but it was about the price of groceries. So we all, you know, are painfully aware now of issues regarding inflation and food inflation, which remains quite stubborn. But here's some new terms being offered to the vernacular about what we see when we shop. And these are offered by Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. We've had him on the program in the past. He's a professor at Dalhousie University that looks at food, food pricing, supply chains, and the like. And yes, profits at the grocery stores. So here's a few that we, I guess we're going to have to consider. Shrinkflation. That's the challenges of escalating expenses while the product size diminishes. So the shrinkflation, we see it. The product that you once paid, just use round numbers, five bucks for five grams, it's now six dollars for four grams. So that's the concept of shrinkflation. Another one is shelfflation. This gets complicated and we hate to have to, you know, 
diminish the concerns that people rightfully voice about how attentive Canadians are to the old best before date. And when they see it arrive or on that day or the day after, they throw it in the garbage. But the concept of shelfflation is the shelf life of grocery products, especially perishables like produce, with any potential disruptions in the growing season and or the quote unquote supply chains, we've seen shelfflation play a, a bigger role in so far as pricing goes than we've seen in the past. And then this is one that I think we're going to see happen more and more as the regulatory regime changes with front of package labeling is called skimpflation. So the manufacturers, they're trying to subtly alter their formula to get ready for these new regulatory matters in the future. And so consequently, with the increase in cost of the ingredients for their product, they think that not only to save money or to make more money is to just kind of figure out and alter the formula which they use, hopefully so that their customers don't notice the change. It might be subtle, but it's going to be real. There's an example used in the, in the news story I read this morning with E.D. Smith's pumpkin pie filling recipe. The vegetable oil is shifting from its previous third position to sixth place. Why? Because vegetable oil is so much more expensive than it once was. Water takes on a more important, prominent role as the third primary ingredient. So there's going to be a bunch of companies out there in an effort to make more money and to prepare for the changes that are indeed coming with front of package labeling and some of the requirements regarding nutrition, then this is happening. So food inflation, now add shrinkflation, shelfflation, and skimpflation. <laughs> I mean, it's almost a bit mind-boggling because basically we want to be able to feed ourselves appropriately without breaking the bank. Was much, and that's what it feels like when we go to the grocery store these days. So there's a lot inside the conversation, but it's a really interesting article if you want to search it out today to get some of the moving parts that are impacting the size of the product, the lifespan of the product on the shelf, and of course the nutritious value and the alteration of the ingredients that make up some of your favorite products on the grocery store shelves. Sticking with food and, of course, industry. Apparently, there's about 10 million pounds of crab yet to be processed. And again, I know it's been a long, arduous season for crab harvesters and the processing sector and the union and the umbrella association for the processors and, yes, the province. So it's not only the six-week tie-up, but, of course, you've heard from the cod harvesters. There's only been about half the capelin quota landed. They're trying to figure out ways to buy and sell their own cod and not having much luck insofar as many of the harvesters that have contacted us. So the question would be, you know, there was a commitment by the province and it required full-on buy-in from the union and the ASP about change in the process for how they set the prices. Because even this go-around, in the price-setting panel comprised of three individuals, they even said the price they came up with for crab is probably not the right, the right price. So it wasn't just crab. Add capel and add cod. So it'd be nice to hear from whether it be the ASP or the FFAW how those conversations sound. Because before we know it, it will be the beginning of snow crab season again. Stick with food security. You know, the province says there has indeed been a doubling in commercial agriculture. All right. I've mentioned this one before, but I think we're going to have to hear from government officials about fully embracing new technologies, most notably hydroponics, and peppering the landscape of the entirety of the province with these greenhouses. Some of them could be in the form of community gardens. Some of them could be in the form of commercial operations. And you know, startup costs are very significant, but when we talk about proximity to food options, the price of getting to the grocery store and then the impact in the grocery store versus having it grown closer by where you 
you live, it just seems to me to be an excellent idea. We hear some reference to it now and then, and you know, then you've got the complications of crown lands and agricultural startups and some of the confusion inside that envelope. But these greenhouses seem to me, whether it be taking over that old canopy site on the White Hills, or just how much production could happen there. And there are hydroponic farms in operation in the province at this time. But, you know, wouldn't it be a winning formula for a politician or a political party to say part of our food production plans is here's how we've priced out what it would look like to have at least one hydroponic option inside of all the 40 voting districts and what it would mean for food security? I think that might be a good place for them to start. Okay. How are we doing on the phone there, Dave? This one, and you know, there's going to be all kinds of concerns, and we're going to hear uh, endless rhetoric regarding clean fuel regulations and carbon tax and all the rest of it, and fair enough, because it's all pocketbook issues, and pocketbook issues rule the day. But with the pathway, and that's only if the current government's policies and platforms remain in place, and who knows what the future holds, but we've got to do some long-term modeling here to figure out what the country looks like, how the process is going to work if the government sticks with the current policy that the plan is to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. And of course, the concept of cleaner grids, Canada asking the provinces and territories to work with them to have net zero emissions on the electric grid by 2035. You know, we can talk about the price tag and what we consume, whether it be with fossil fuels to heat your home or filling up your rig or carbon tax, yes. But even if there's going to be a natural and organic electrification, and some of it will absolutely happen because of people's own personal choices versus government-mandated alterations or transitions, but here's some numbers to consider. If by 2035 we're talking about net zero on the grid, it'll cost somewhere in the neighborhood of $400 billion to replace aging facilities and expand generation capacity on the country's electrical grid. Now, It can be done. So whether it be with more cooling systems added, more electric vehicles, population growth, economic growth, this is the natural reality. And I don't think it's going to matter a whole lot about which government, which party is in place in the federal government and mandates about net zero and what have you. Sure, there's going to be some change, but there is going to be population and economic growth, some of it based on electrification. So there's reports out there from Electricity Canada and from some government agencies and the Canadian Climate Institute We're going to need to grow capacity at a rate of three to six times faster than it did in the past decade until 2050 if this is going to be satisfied. Now, the volatility of fossil fuels and the price tag on is one thing. Is there more stability in the price of electricity? Not necessarily, but possibly not as volatile as fossil fuel-related matters. The issue and some of the concerns brought forward by some of the reports that have been authored is that, yes, it's a big price tag. And it's possible. But what has, hap- what has to be part of this is the long-term modeling that you see in some other countries to ensure that you do it incrementally. Because even if we talk about the numbers of electric vehicles that will be on the ground by 2050 and grandfathering in uh, however many internal combustion engines remain on the ground, because that is currently part of the policy. And yes, as I mentioned, it may indeed change. But we've got to see at least 3% attention to expanding the grid on the course to 2050. Is there a long-term model that I have not been able to find in this country with the plan to how that's going to work? It can't be federal government mandates, federal government policy for a transition that's not followed by long-term modeling. It cannot be left up strictly to the provinces and the territories to simply adhere to or abide by federal government policy because they play an active role here. 
because we've got all this foolishness with provincial territory boundaries and the inability to transmit without all these saber rattling and rackets and tariffs when it comes to electricity or anything else in this country. So where's the long-term model to the feds? You know, again, some of this change will happen regardless of the party in power. But if we're not going to see the federal government with the long term vision, then their policies are only halfway there. You know, even include the fact now with the Atlantic Loop, it still it remains a PR exercise. Now we have found out that it will indeed see the potential for two thirds of the cost borne by the federal government. But the overall $400 billion price tag for expanding the electric grid, not so sure we've seen enough attention given to us and it by the federal government. What do you think? And then, you know, to contrast and being applauded in many corners, Equinor's decision to bring the Hercules semi-submersible drill rig to the waters off the coast of our province next year. You know, out in the Flemish Pass, in an effort to try to make more financial sense of the Beta Nord project, because Beta Nord is not just one well. It's a combination of six different finds. So I guess this is an effort to see just how much recoverable oil is out there to make what was... Apparently, the last number we heard was $16 billion project. Equinor says it's far surpassed that. So, anyway, you want to take it on? We can do exactly that. I want to give a shout-out, some advance notice to people in the area on Carbonair. The Carbonair Food Bank hosting a superhero-themed food drive on Thursday. Great idea. Thursday from 1 to 4.30 p.m. at the Food Bank on St. Clair Avenue. Bring your superhero best. And when you go inside, you have to make a donation for the price of admission. It's going to be refreshments and popcorn, hot dogs available for purchase. Going to be some games. So you know you got some superhero garb kicking around. Make your way to the Carbonated Food Bank on Sinclair Avenue, Thursday from 1 to 4.30. Okay, I had an email from a lady who would like to thank a couple of folks that she had, had uh, pardon me, neglected to get the names of a couple of couples from Briggis stopped to lend a hand when their boat broke down at Conception Bay yesterday. So they, they rescued a stranded boater and we want to thank, on her behalf, we want to thank those two couples from Briggis who came to their aid or their rescue. Good stuff. We're on Twitter. That's great. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline.vocm.com but the best part of the show is when you pick up the phone to call us, get in the queue and talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board on line number one. Good morning, Michael. You're on the air. Hi. Yes. Uh, this is Michael Michael in. Welcome to the show. If you have us on speaker, would you mind picking up the hand of the receiver so we can hear you clearer? Yes. I don't want to lose. I, okay. Okay. Yep. Uh, I'd like to talk to you about homelessness, Patty. Okay. I talked to you about five or six months ago about homelessness. I'm 63 years old, and I've been homeless for eight months in three different shelters for seniors, right? Okay. All right. So the problem, Patty, is uh, in, in these three places, the, pe- the staff that work there do not know how to deal with mental health issues. I've had problems in all three shelters. I've been called, um, I'm half black, so I've been called the N-word, and they, they want to vent on me because I'm a bit older than they are, and uh, they just don't know how to deal with mental health issues or anger, right? Anyway, I uh, was staying at a place on Toby Road, uh, across from uh, Toby Road uh, Mall, and uh, three days ago, I took a Twinkie out of a fridge. It was Buddy's Twinkie that lives in the shelter, and... The other day, I went back to my place. He had kicked my door in and urinated urinated on all my stuff. And 
threatened me with a knife and everything else, right? So I went there this morning, grabbed important stuff of mine there, and I'm not going back. So my clothes and everything else are there. Now, the problem, Patty, is I am was connected with uh, Connections for Seniors and Newfoundland Housing. Newfoundland Housing has been on a wait list for two years to get a place. Newfoundland Housing has done nothing for me. Connections for Seniors has done nothing for me. You know, I am homeless here. I want a place of my own. That's all. And the problem is uh, people from Ukraine get first dibs on everything. I don't have a problem with that. I'm not angry or anything. I'd rather have them over here safe than be over there, you know, dealing with uh, Russia and everything else, right? I need a place to live, Patty. That's all I'm talking about, right? That's all I want. Are you on a list at Newfoundland Labrador Housing? Is that what you said? Yes, on the wait list? For two years. Mm-hmm. And they have done, uh, they've done nothing in two years, nothing. I've got no phone calls or anything like that, right? And Connections for Seniors, they've done nothing for me but uh, send me in the wrong direction, you know? I couldn't get a place to live, Patty, if my life depended on it right now, like an apartment, one-bedroom apartment, right? I can't live, uh, you know, in a, uh, you know, those places where there's a whole bunch of people, I don't know what it's called, Um you know, bed and breakfast or... So where where do you live right now? I'm homeless. So you're living on the streets? No, not really. I have a tent I can I can sleep in. I have friends that I stay at, but I mean, I'm, I'm putting them out, kind of, you know, so to speak. I just want my own place, Patty, to, you know, one bedroom apartments, that's all. And uh, I, can't, I can't get it. Are you able to... Pay rent, or do you need supports from uh, whatever I social safety net or the Newfoundland Labrador Housing? I'm, I'm just trying to get down to so I might be able to point you in a different direction. I have. Uh, I can get subsidized housing. All I need is a rent, uh, a rental agreement from a landlord, and I can, I can get welfare. Will pay half, and connections for seniors will pay half, right? Okay. So a thousand dollars a month, uh, I'll be able to pay. I can't find anything, Patty. Nothing. Okay, what I'm going to do, I'm going to text David uh, a number. I'm going to leave it off the air, but I'm going to text David Williams a number right now, and I'm going to put you on hold, and he's going to give it to you, okay? Okay. All right, just one second here. Uh, I will put you on hold here, Michael, and hopefully this helps. And so you'll speak with David here now in a few seconds while I type out this text, okay? Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Take care, and good luck. All right, uh, just give me a second here, gang, before I can... Get to the next call because, you know, when Michael talks about now, the potential that he feels like maybe putting out friends uh, when he just, you know, stays at their house. And I totally understand that concept, but that just adds to the numbers. You know, homelessness means more than I'm simply on the street because if you are couch surfing or a check away for potentially being without a place to lay your head, then you are, in the big scheme of things, absolutely a homeless person. So here we go, David. Here comes that text for you, and you can relay it to Michael. Let's keep rolling. All right, let's go to line number two. Good morning, Alex Taylor. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi there. Um, i just like to give a shout-out for my benefit concert tomorrow. Let's do it. I saw it being... Uh, I, I saw it float by on my social media, but go ahead. What are you doing? Well, uh, me and some of my friends are doing this benefit concert for the Deputy Mayor of Mount Pearl, Nicole Kiley. 
And for people who are unaware, Nicole Kylie was severely injured. But there was a vehicle that crashed through the uh, uh, Shepherd's Drug Mart on Marchant Road. Serious, serious injuries and a long road to recovery. So good on you for taking it on. What makes this something that you want to do yourself, uh, Alex? Well, not only that, me, friends and family know Nicole. She always is giving to the community, so I believe we should try to get back. Good for you. So what can people anticipate if they're going to be in attendance? And then give us the where and the wins. Uh, well, there's a bunch of variety of genres of music that's going to be played. Uh, just a few musicians. There's the Celtic Fiddlers. There's, there's me. And there's also Lee Zachary Bercy is going on. And then there's also a few more. Uh, the date is tomorrow, August 16th, 2023, at 7 p.m. Um, and it's also at Our Queen Families, formerly St. Peter's Parish, Community Hall, 11 Ashford Drive, Mount Pearl. This is not the first time you've done this either, Alex. You've done some uh, various fundraisers of your own accord, took the bull by the horns, organized some other performers to join you, raised money for one cause or another. You must get some personal satisfaction or gratification for doing these things. Yes, I always love helping out. It's it's really easy for me to accept that it's it's really nice, right? Supporting others. I think it's great what you're doing. So hopefully folks will take the opportunity to go and help raise some money. So what's the is there a price to uh join the uh, the concert or how are people going to help raise some money for Nicole's recovery? You can put in a donation. Uh tickets are $15 each. Uh you can call 709-691-4020 to get them. Um, you can also go to the door uh, the night of uh, before the concert so you can buy a few tickets we'll be having some um, there at the uh, community hall of our queen of families Uh, thank you for doing this and I appreciate the time this morning Alex hopefully the concert is a roaring success perfect well thank you you're welcome take good care you too bye bye there you go Alex Taylor teenager doing some good things I mean you know, sometimes I think today's youth get a bad rap. I got one email, you know, pretty much lecturing me and the province's youth about incompetence and all the rest. But there's just so many young people doing some really great things in the community. Big things, too, right? So good for Alex taking it on. Uh, also in the back-to-school envelope conversation, uh, once again, this is a suggestion from an emailer, something we've talked about in the past, and I've been a vocal supporter of. Not everyone's on board with this possibility or suggestion but in the world of back to school when you're trying to fill the closet or replenish some older or out of style or out of date or tattered clothing what the concept of a, a school uniform looks like you know some of the private schools they absolutely have a school uniform in place but for the most part as far as i know in the rest of all the public school system there are no uniforms it would be certainly a cost saving to the families it levels the playing field it would not be no longer a case where simply because of what you're wearing you are deemed to be poor or rich or any of those potential social divides and they're real and they absolutely absolutely lead to the formation of some of the school cliques that are always going to be part of it people will gravitate to folks who are maybe from their neighborhood or they play sports with or their parents are friends and yes their socioeconomic background absolutely is part of the social dynamic but a school uniform i like the sound of it I really do, for every reason under the sun, including I think it looks great. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about availability of housing and maybe some potential solutions. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. 
Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Michael, you're on the air. Hi, Michael. Hello, good morning. Good morning to you. Good morning. Go right ahead. What's on your mind? Uh, so I guess, uh, you know, I, I just, um, you know, I, I was listening earlier about this net zero topic, and I guess, you know, it's, it's certainly not understood widely by a lot of people, you know, the concept or, or what's really trying to be proven. I think that's and I fair. Guess, uh, I, I think there's obviously, um, you know, education that needs to be, you know, doled out to the general society here. And, um, you know, it's it's kind of disheartening that all these policies are, you know, trying to get pushed through with you know, just a complete lack of understanding about how it all works and, um, you know, what, what, you know, everybody's trying to achieve in this. Um, certainly here in Newfoundland, I guess, over, the, you know, the last couple of years, there's been a, a bit of an uptake in people trying to produce energy-efficient homes, and that's, that's part of what I do. I'm a contractor here locally, and, and we specifically build energy-efficient homes. Um, so I guess, you know, moral of the story is, you know, products are out there to help us, you know, achieve net zero, to, to get to a, a better place, and, you know, to, to get people into homes that are, are certainly more energy-efficient, a lower cost of living, I guess, would be the the, the biggest part of it. Um, you know, energy costs are certainly increasing, and, and that'll never change, I don't think, in, in any time soon. Um, but, you know, the, the homes that we build here now, specifically what I'm referring to is, um, you know, concrete homes built out of insulated concrete forms. Um, you know, if the general public who are now, you know, we, we see a lot of people, I guess, you know, later on in life, you know, they're, they're getting out of their big homes and they're building smaller homes. And, and certainly that comes with a, a fairly extended price tag. And, um, you know, if, if I could just put a plug in there that, you know, the technology is available here locally in Newfoundland. We build some, you know, very nice homes that can get people to a net zero standard, um, you know, just through the, the low consumption of energy. Um, and it, it, it's kind of disheartening to watch, you know, people, you know, of retirement age and stuff like that, putting all their chips in to the pool and just, uh, you know, spending the money on, on a new home, which, you know, is basically going to be outdated within the next 10 years. So I think it's a, it's a problem and it's a hurdle that we would all need to overcome together and you know, just generally through understanding and education and just even just general knowledge of what is available out there. Uh, absolutely. I think you're making good points here, Michael. So right off the bat, when people hear net zero, they're some, in some people's minds it means zero, but it doesn't, right? Net zero is a completely different conversation because it's basically where GHG emissions based on human activity are in the air, it's how much carbon is taken out of the environment leading to net zero, not that there will be zero emissions. So there's a little bit of a misunderstanding there. And as I've said in the past, like you can talk about alternative sources of heating your home, for instance, moving away from oil or with the heat pumps or whatever the case may be, but probably for cost recovery and for decreasing your bill, probably the most important thing you can do is upgrade your insulation windows and doors because where the heat gets out, you're just backfilling it out of your pocketbook with all however you're heating your home. So yeah, there are things out there we can do beyond some of the big headline grabbers, the electric vehicles and central heat pumps and all the rest because you can save some money uh, very, very quickly. Cost recovery is absolutely available if you upgrade even the standards in your own home and look at if you're building some of the technologies 
opportunities that are abundantly available here and everywhere that you mentioned. So I think you're adding important points to the conversation because sometimes when we talk about these things, in some minds it's simply carbon tax, clean fuel regulations, the government is taxing me to death, as opposed to what can I do to benefit my own self and consequently contribute to the quest for net zero, but importantly, save some money. That's absolutely right. I mean, you know, the technologies are available out there now, <clears throat> certainly for new home construction as well as retrofit. Mm-hmm. And I think that at the end of the day, um, if we could all just maybe just step back for a minute and, like you said, just get away from the general conversation that's going on now and better prepare ourselves for what's to come. And I mean, certainly, you know, the one major thing I think that, you know, everybody's worrying about the dollars. Everybody, you know, needs more money in the bank and don't want to spend more money. If we could all just get to the fact that if, if we could reduce our, our bill, like let's just say our, you know, our power bill, for example, if we could reduce that by 30% every month or 40% every month by upgrading our homes or building homes correctly from the beginning, that's where I'm at with it personally, um, we could then, you know, that money stays in your pocket. And whether or not you take that money and put it straight onto your mortgage, you can pay your mortgage off faster or you know, whatever you decide to do with it, but certainly the options are available there. And like you said, like a, even a basic mini split heat pump, right off the bat, I mean, it's, it's a huge cost savings. It's a very simple retrofit on a house. It's certainly very easy on a, on a brand new construction. So, you know, I, I think that if we could just have a better education system here to keep the general public aware of what can be done, I think, you know, there would be a great amount of merit in just that alone, you know? Give us some idea. Like, I'm really pleased that when we renovated some years back, we included a mini split. The biggest benefit that I've enjoyed is on these really sticky, muggy days throughout July, just having the dry setting. And, of course, to give a quick burst of heat to the main living area in the morning is also a very comforting feature. Let's just take an average... 1,100-square-foot uh, bungalow, and I'm heating strictly with oil. I install a mini-split, not to take out oil in full, but I install a mini-split at whatever price tag, and they vary. What does cost recovery generally look like, Michael? If I were to be totally honest with you, I guess, um, like, you know, just on a personal basis, I know for a home that's now, it's a 2,400-square-foot home. It is um, oil furnace heat. In the, in the worst of times in the winter, it is about an $800, dollars 750 to $800 bill, okay? Just, you know, averaging month to month to month to month. That is extremely high, obviously, just, you know, part and parcel because of cost of fuels these days and all that. But um, it was retrofitted with two mini-split heat pumps at 12,000 BTU downstairs. The price tag on that, I think, was about $4,100 and the 18,000 BTU unit upstairs. That price tag came in at just a shade over 5,000, okay? Um, certainly, they're not high-end units or not low-end units, but I mean that's you know a, a middle-of-the-road unit. The um, the electricity bill for that house went from $100 a month to $210 a month, but the oil consumption went down to $404 a month on average through a, a four-month period in the winter. So I mean that, that is a substantial cost savings right there. And I mean you know obviously there's a capital expenditure and purchasing those units and what have you, but at the end of the day. That person is now net positive money. It is certainly more comfortable, like you said. I mean, you can turn it on for a quick blast of heat. You can utilize it throughout the summer when you have, you know, your warm temperatures that, you know, you want to escape for a little while. And it just it, it, it creates a, a better environment on top of the cost savings, you know. So, I mean, there's, there's certainly a lot of merit just in that and that alone. Um, another thing that probably we should just touch on here is, 
you know, these, these homes that are, you know, R12 or R20 construction, you know, anything, you know, post-1981 is typically a 2x6 wall. Pre-81 is, you know, there's a lot of 2x4 construction. So the insulation that, you know, everybody's going to re- retrofit their home at some point in time, windows, doors, siding. And, um, you know, at that, at that juncture in your life, you really want to sit back and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to spend $25,000 to rehab the exterior of my house. What is an extra insulated value cost bone going to add to this project? You know, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different insulations that can be retrofitted to the exterior of a home without ever introducing any issues inside the house. And, you know, for, let's just say it costs uh, an extra six or $7,000 in, in materials to do that type of a, a retrofit, the cost savings at the end of it is absolutely just tangible. Like, you could see it every month. And, you know, you, you could probably, let's just say, if you went from electrically heating a home for, let's just say it's a $500 bill, um, you know, throughout the, the winter months. If you could knock that down to, say, $350 a month, that's $150 net positive in your pocket every single month. Sure, it costs you $6,000 for the insulation, but if you were smart with your money and, you know, if, if you whacked all that, you know, the, the extra savings you had back onto your mortgage, I mean, you're paying your mortgage off, you know, substantially, substantially quicker. So, I mean, yeah, certainly the options are out there. We just we need to make sure that the public are, are well aware of what it is that they can cannot do to, to save themselves. And there's stackable pots of money out there as well that can contribute to some upfront costs. Now, they're not all those programs are not created equal, but there are subsidies out there for these types of moves with your own home. So just to make sure I understood your uh, cost recovery on a 2,400-square-foot uh, home, the upfront cost for installation, if I heard the numbers properly, was in and around $9,200, $9,300. With the cost savings monthly, it looks to me like the cost recovery happened within two and a half years. In full. And, um, well, uh, you'd have to take into consideration the fact that, you know, we're talking winter heat months as opposed to summer. So sure. If, if, you would, if you would kindly double that amount of time, which I think is perfectly acceptable, let's talk about a five-year plan here now rather than a, a, a three-year plan. Even that in itself, Patty, is absolutely – you can feel less. That's, that's tangible. Less money in your pockets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you called. I mean, you know, people who have actual lived life experience as a contractor, familiar with the products and approaches we can take versus, as I mentioned, you know, the things that grab all the headlines are the carbon taxes and the electric vehicles. When in between that, there's a lot of things you can do to save yourself some money. If you're concerned with emissions and your own carbon footprint, fine. But I would suggest even those who are most environmentally conscious are also very conscientious of their pocketbook because we have no choice to be these days. So there's big savings to be had here. And I'm I'm glad you called. Any further thoughts you want to add this morning, Michael? I just, you know, Fetty, the only thing I can uh, tell people, you know, just uh, I alluded to it just for a second here in the beginning of our conversation, but if, if you're building a new home and you are, you know, wanting to do something better to utilize less energy and to, you know, keep your carbon footprint down, everyone in this province should really highly consider building homes, concrete homes out of insulated concrete forms. The the sound transmission quality is fantastic. The, the just the, the general knowledge of knowing that you have a house that cannot fall apart. Really, it's a concrete home. I mean, when it comes retrofit time in a concrete home, you're just replacing the exterior units of the house. You're not, you know, you, you don't need to get into paint and plaster work because you had to tear apart half of a home because you have so much rot, mold, and mildew damage. You know, so I think that you know if, if anybody is is in the market for a new home, certainly seniors. I think that you know there's. A, big market here for seniors because they they want to get out of their big home and you know just get into something smaller more manageable Uh, let's 
let's put it out there and just let everybody know that the products that are available here in Newfoundland can change your life, can absolutely change the cost that you incur every month. And if I were to give everyone out here a little bit of advice, if you are building a new home today, just maybe sit down and visit the idea of building a house out of insulated concrete forms and concrete and try to you know, reducing the carbon footprint as well by not having any materials that need to go to the dump in a few years time. That you know, just it, it's when you rehab a house or, or put a new exterior on a home, there's inevitably here in Newfoundland just the, the rust and the mold and the mildew that is encountered every time is just it's absolutely horrendous. And it's just it's nature to beast. It's where we live. You know, it's it's a, it's a damp climate. It's, you know, it's, it's just it's, it's an inhospitable climate for you know lumber and, and insulation, drywall. When, you know, when it's ingressed by water and stuff like that. So, let's you know, everybody just take a minute, take a step back. If you're going to build a new home, or you know, you're looking for your retirement home, or something like that, seek out people who understand insulated concrete forms or these newer building methods. Let's you know, there's lots other than insulated concrete forms, but new building methods that you know. One thing we're guilty of in Newfoundland is saying, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But sometimes we turn a blind eye to what's broken. And, you know, certainly the way we've built homes for the last 50 years, 60 years, uh, there's a better way to do it. And, you know, we should all just seek that advice before we start doling out copious amounts of money to people just to get a job done. So that's about all I had to say about it. I really appreciate your time, Michael. Thank you very much, sir. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. There we go. That was terrific. I mean, and you know, the basics, because we can talk about the big pots of money out there and some of the programs that are, you know, the upfront cost. You don't have to bear yourself. You can just build like take charge directly for some of these conversions that people talk about. But the basics, without getting into some of those major price tags with insulation and as Michael's talking about with new home construction and, you know, insulation, windows, doors, siding not reinventing the wheel but saving money for sure i, I enjoyed that one uh, before we get to the break let's go to line number four larry you're on the air hi larry hey how goes it that's kind what's on to go uh my dog went missing around in mon area in st john's two nights ago and i never heard of her since i was walking her and uh, i had to stop for a few people walking and when I st- when I let her go, she took off running fast and took the retractable leash right out of my hands. And she took off running, and that was two nights ago, and I've never seen her since. She's a about a ninety five pound brindle pit bull uh, boxer mix. In the neighborhood of Memorial University, a couple nights ago, and I assume the retractable leash is still dangling from the dog's neck. So describe the dog one more time, Larry. She's a brindle, brindle, pit bull boxer mix. She's about 95 pounds. She's not what you call super friendly. She's really nervous. She's a brindle boxer. She got the retractable leash. She got, uh, her name is Lady. She got a collar going around her neck with my name and number. So if she's not particularly friendly, probably the best advice is if you spot the dog simply to give you a call versus try to wrangle the dog themselves. I would not approach her, no. Okay, so don't approach this dog, but if you spot her, give Larry a call so we can get him on the case right away looking for a lady. What's your number? Uh, 743-5124. Okay, well, I've got it. If anyone spots the dog, please do indeed give Larry a call at 743-5124. Good luck. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You're welcome, Larry. Take care. Bye-bye. But please don't go towards Lady and try to grab her up for Larry. Just simply call Larry. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about an event coming up regarding restorative justice. Don't go away. 
Welcome back to the show. Let us go to line number one. Good morning, Dr. Dorothy Vandering. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to um, it's, uh, I'm calling to just let people know about our Restorative Justice and Education uh, Summer Institute. I believe this is about the fifth year we're doing it. And we have, this is the first time that it's in person for a couple of years. Um, and we've got a great lineup and the topic is very important as we're trying to really connect different um, segments of society, community education and justice. Um, through the work that we do with Relationships First. Um, and uh, so we have a number of, um, of people from the Department of Justice, Department of Education, and so on involved. But we're really excited because um, we have Richard DeReeb coming from uh, Nova Scotia this year to be a keynote speaker on the second day. And he's the executive director of restorative justice uh, initiatives with the government of Nova Scotia. So he's working there in a very successful way with connecting education, justice and community. Um, so we really want um, the general public to know that they're invited parents who are thinking about um education and their and their children uh, there's there's stuff there's lots of presentations for them um, we're looking uh, and you know the current um, context of our uh, Department of Education with bringing in NLESD and um, uh, Deputy Minister Greg O'Leary uh, now being uh, the minister, uh, the deputy minister of education transformation, all of this stuff uh, really uh, connects, and and we're really excited about uh, the work that is evolving um, with relationships first and restorative justice in the province. There's, you know, we're gaining some really great support for just a different way of being in education and community as a whole. Yeah. So sometimes when I hear restorative justice, people think that it's part and parcel with simply the criminal justice system, as opposed mm -hmm. to also an approach incorporated in school-type settings or even in your social mm -hmm. circles. It might not be formalized where we say, well, today we're performing restorative justice, yeah. but, it, but it comes in many forms. Describe how those differences might look. Let's start with criminal justice, because I've done a bit of research on this front, because I remember interviewing a guy who I think has been considered this uh, quote-unquote godfather of restorative justice, uh, um. a fellow from Ireland. I can't remember name, but I interviewed him many, many years ago on Out of the Fog. In this country, the work that Public Safety Canada has done in the criminal justice system, they say that restorative justice has led to a reducing reduction in recidivism by upwards of 12%. So it's meaningful. Yes. So talk about how it works on that level. Right. So um, in, the, in the context of the judicial system, uh, there's uh, different points in which uh, restorative justice can be applied. And ideally, we would want it to be applied early in in the um, in in the system. So when people uh, are first facing charges, that there be um, alternative alternatives to having to go through the whole court system. And um, ultimately, what restorative justice does is it it identifies um, uh, not what has been done wrong, but who has been harmed and how that harm can be repaired. And so there's a lot of um, 
you know, people involved in our justice system that uh, and are even, you know, uh, in in prison and so on, waiting for, um, you know, the opportunity to have their their cases heard that could um, be taken taken care of through a restorative justice approach. And sometimes people think, well, then it's um, a matter of, you know, the person who has been harmed and the person who's caused the harm to meet together. Um, And, you know, ideally that's where, you know, we'd like to go. But there's lots of restorative ways of being and knowing that can happen before that, just even in terms of how um, different people talk about um, what has happened. And so in terms of the connection with education and with justice or or with community, it's about helping people um, move away from a, um, you know, an individualistic way of thinking about society and protecting ourselves to talking about how do we function in an interconnected way. And, um, you know, we've been led a lot by uh, the insights of Chief Missile Joe on this in uh, the last couple of years in our work as well. And so, um, yeah, so in, in the justice system, it can happen, you know, at that very early stage, but it can also happen, you know, um, um, you know, with sentencing and so on, that there are different ways to, depending on the harm that's done, um, there are uh, a variety of ways to um, resolve uh, the situations. And and you're right that across uh, the country and, and you know, the continent and, and the world, um, there's really significant um, work that has been done um, that uh, shows, uh, you know, the cost savings, um, but also, you know, more importantly, moving away from the economic context um, is is just much healthier societies where people um, begin to take responsibility uh, in a much more holistic way for things that happen, you know, within families, within communities, and so on. So I don't know if I've answered your question. I, I think so. And just to be clear for listeners who we're not, no one's trying to say that it's appropriate in every situation. There's some exactly. people who've been victimized who have no interest in entering into a restorative justice program. And same right. with some offenders. It's probably not applicable and appropriate in some very serious crimes. It does not replace tr- uh, criminal justice, traditionally exactly. speaking, because people still be incarcerated. It's just yeah. a different, it's a, another tool in the toolbox, as people say. Yeah, um, oh. but it, it's a little bit more than another tool in the toolbox. It's also about um, recognizing recognizing that we often, um, you know, the, uh, you know, our thought process around harm is, is really um, embedded in kind of a Western mindset that, that is um, um, an us, them, a black, white um, uh, perspective of things, right? And so that whole idea of understanding every human being as, as being worthy and interconnected um, has really been kept alive by indigenous um, 
uh, perspectives over over the generations as well, right? And and that you know that contrast between an individualistic way of thinking and uh, a more interconnected and relational way of thinking is something that you know I believe as a as a non-indigenous person and having been involved in this for you know more than twenty years that um, you know recognizing that I have to shift how I've been encouraged to think about right and wrong, about um, the worth of different individuals, and so on. And so that my background is actually in restorative justice and education, but I have, um, you know, my research work has been around understanding the roots of restorative justice and that how that's embedded in in the key things that we believe about who we are as human beings. And that's worked out in very practical ways, as our work has shown um, in education, because in education, yes, it is about when uh, students um, and people within the education system, you know, encounter difficult situations and conflict, but it's about much more. It's about it's about uh, nurturing relational classroom and school communities um, as opposed to rule-based, um, you know, uh, uh, schools. Uh, very not quick. that there are no rules. Not that there are no rules. Uh, of course, this is not, you know, hand-holding uh, whatever no. people want to call is the so-called exactly. liberal, soft on everything. It's, it's not no. that at all. It's a complement to what's already existing, and it's just improving things. Because take it from Public yeah. Safety Canada, and this that the report that I'm hearkening back to, the numbers are very similar when we talk about different parties be, holding the seat of power in Ottawa. So it's got nothing to do with politics. It's got to do with positive outcomes. Uh, Exactly. Very quickly, Dr. Vandering, give the folks the details where, when, one more time before I take a break for the news. Right. Okay, so it's uh, Wednesday and Thursday, August 30 and 31, all day. It's under the, it's in the uh, Core Science Building under the whale. Um, we have, um, you know, uh, presentations on restorative justice refresher courses, um, different perspectives of circle uh, dialogue and circle pedagogy. We have um, relationship with institutions. And then Richard Dereeb's, um restorative justice implementation and misimplementation in time of education transformation. And, you know, how it's connected to assessment, uh, difficult conversations around sexual health, and so on and so forth. And people can find all the information at uh, www.rf, as in um, uh, first, relationships first, rfnl.org. I appreciate the time this morning, Doctor. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take Have care. a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Dorothy Vendering. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, housing issues on top of mind. And, of course, whatever you want to talk about, you can do it right after this. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Tom, you're on the air. Something Michael, the gentleman called a couple of callers ago about ICF homes. Um, I actually had a friend who built those in the past, like years ago. He was kind of ahead of his time, and he said that he had trouble selling them. He had to discount them lower than a wood frame home because people, I guess, didn't understand them and didn't really value the the energy savings, which is, which is kind of crazy. And the other thing that's interesting, of course, is that, that unlike wood frame homes where we have to import the majority of the materials, 
in Bishop Falls, we have uh, Styro, NL Styro, which makes the, the the actual insulated insulation part, and of course the aggregate, which is the concrete and stuff, is all local. And and they actually are quicker to build, uh, so they require less labor as well in the process. So you know, not only are all the savings, and and they're also um, quieter, and uh, and you know. There's many savings, but it's just it's really it's it's almost like a no-brainer that you would not consider that if you're building a new home. Fair enough. I thought he was great. Yeah, he did a good job. I, and I also would say that he really minimized the savings. I mean, I I know of individuals who went from oil to uh, mini splits and saved. One particular gentleman saved uh, ten thousand dollars in a year on oil versus uh, uh, less than ten nine thousand on on oil versus, and then and then his electrical cost went to. Uh, I think it went from went from like twenty five hundred bucks up to six thousand. So he was saving three thousand dollars a year. So he paid for he was paying for his mini splits way faster than even the five years that Michael was talking about. So yeah, great call and good thing to think about. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the most important thing is you know uh, to, uh, to summarize one of or some of these points. When we just get caught up in the same old traditional approach that we've always taken to construction of a new home without considering some of the modern innovations and some potential cost savings and doing it before you end up renovating or refitting or retrofitting your home later on in its life, it's just worthwhile to make make sure you know exactly what you're getting yourself into and what options are out there. Right. And the other thing, too, is how much space you need. I mean, a lot of us have these homes and we have a lot of space. There's been studies shown that we use a very a lot of people use a very small amount of their house. That you know, dining rooms, for example, obviously, but but even porches and there's parts of our homes we build because in theory we think we're going to use them and um, and then we don't. So then but then we have to actually build them, pay them, pay for them, maintain them, heat them, and and all the things that go along with it. So you know, all these things, are, you know, in a perfect world, especially young people starting or people who are downsizing, like Michael alluded to, as they you know have raised their families. You know, just ask yourself a question, you know, how much do I really want, you know, if I really think about the fact that all these things become on some level, uh, you know, chain around our neck that we have to maintain for the rest of our lives and heat and light and all that stuff. So, you know, thinking a little bit forward, I think, is would be an awesome idea for, for all of us. I sometimes wish I had more space, but 90% of the time I'm glad I don't with all the associated <laughs> additional costs. But anyway, uh, fair enough. What is it? You called about some potential creative ways to talk about uh, availability of housing. Well, you know, Jim Dim was on last week, and he was talking about, and a lot of people do talk about the fact that, you know, we look at these subdivisions and, and municipalities kind of salivate over them because in theory they think they're getting extra money. But that urban sprawl actually ends up being a net loss to the community because we have to maintain those, those all those roads and plow them and salt them and, and garbage collection and everything else. So, you know, the secret really is is how can we increase our population density. But so, you know, right now we have all these fund we have funding available from the government, federal and provincial government to help make homes more energy efficient. And uh, I would love to see a policy that would encourage people with single family homes. There's a lot of a lot of people who are getting to this stage of life, their children have moved out. And how about how about the way of an opportunity to turn them into multiple units and 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 figure out a way that that, you know, somehow the government can still be um protected so you don't help subsidize someone building turning their single family home into a multiple unit like you know you know the obvious thing would be putting an apartment in the basement let's even think bigger than that and maybe even turn it into four uh, smaller units but have have a way so that the government somehow has a mortgage on it so if the person just can't flip it and and make it 
profitable. But there's many, many benefits to that. You know, you look at seniors and people with fixed income or just people who are house poor. It could help people stay in their homes, which, of course, is a really big thing we're trying to do, especially with people as they age, just find a way so they can stay in their homes. And obviously, it could significantly increase the space, the living space that's available for residents and newcomers. Increase the population density, which then brings down the cost for municipalities to be able to service the people within it. And also reducing the resources, you know, a really large carbon footprint for is new home construction, too, because, you know, concrete in particular is, is pretty highly intensive. And, and so a lot of the stuff that goes into building a new home has a carbon footprint. So by starting with the existing square footage, I think I think if you think about how much square footage people have, I mean, in the last 40 years, we've almost doubled the living space uh, that people live in while the family unit has, has shrunk. So, you know, there's lots of square footage if we can just find out, find a way to um, utilize it better. And so I just want to encourage people to, you know, just sit back and think, you know, how can we create policy and and how can we think about making those investments in our home, not only for energy efficiency, but just utilizing the space better. Fair enough. Uh, Tom, I appreciate the time here this morning. The urban sprawl conversation, I mean, this has been going on for decades. What people fail to realize is even if we talk about the fundamentals of water, sewer, uh, pavement, maintenance, plowing, garbage pickup, everything comes with a huge cost. And the way the city of St. John's has grown and has expanded regarding urban sprawl has cost me dearly as a property taxpayer. Uh, Appreciate the time, Tom. Thanks for this. Uh, Patty, can I just add one thing? Sure. Sorry, I just want to just close. Sure. Um, uh, Connie was on yesterday. Did a great job of making a case for the body safety program. And and right now, as we sit as we sit here looking at it, um, you know, we just announced this 1.6 kilometer busing thing, which is I think is great. And I think the government missed a bit of an opportunity to also focus on the carbon savings, the greenhouse gas savings from all the people now who <clears throat> who will not be driving their children and grandchildren to school, and also even better, won't be idling waiting for their children and grandchildren to get out of school afterwards. And, and so, I, and you know, at, at really no extra uh, cost, because right now, especially the first stage, it's going to be all the same buses. Do, you know, the next phase next year, there will obviously be more buses, and there will be a cost of that, but that's a great saving. But, you know, you know, they announced that this is going to protect children, you know, not going to have to walk to school and, and whatever else. However, with our body safety program that we really believe needs to be brought into schools, that body safety program will protect the children everywhere, every day. So I'm calling the government and and the people who are down in the weeds who have the ability to push this up to uh, let's get this body safety program as quickly as possible. Thanks, Tom. Okay, take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Uh, Where am I going here, David? Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the executive director at the, the Eating Disorder Foundation. That's Paul Toomey. Paul, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How about you? Not bad at all. I won't keep you long this morning. Uh, you're having a great show there. I just wanted to do two things. Number one, I wanted to thank the wonderful crowd of people that came out to our bingo last Wednesday night. It was uh, it was a great turnout, and uh, lots of people went away with, uh, with some money, and um, we really appreciate everybody who showed up and look forward to seeing a big crowd again for our final bingo of the year on uh, Excuse me, on August the 30th. So that, that's one thing. Second thing, today is draw day for our second 
50-50 sweep. So if anybody wants tickets, you can call our office, uh, 709-722-0500, or you can pop us an email, info at edfnl.ca. And uh, 2 o'clock this afternoon is our deadline before we have to get everything ready for the draw. But uh, I can tell you the jackpot's growing. We're getting uh, lots of calls and lots of e-transfers here this morning. So uh, it looks like it'll be a decent jackpot this time around again. Glad to hear it. Got a, got a guesstimate at what we're going to see for a jackpot? I think the winner's share is probably going to be somewhere in the seven to $800 range. But if, uh, if a few people who are listening to us here right now come through this morning, that can climb up to maybe the $1,000 that we had the first time again. Hopefully a mad rush on tickets between now and the 2 o'clock deadline. I appreciate the time, Paul. Anything else before we say goodbye? No, that that's it for this morning, Patty. Other than to say that all the money that we raise through all of these fundraisers goes to support the work that we do. And that work includes supporting individual and individuals and families who are dealing with this serious mental illness that is an eating disorder. And we need your help. Absolutely. And good luck with this, Paul. And stay in touch. Thanks very much, Patty. Always appreciate the time with you. My pleasure. Take care. Okay. Right, it's Paul Toomey, Executive Director at the Eating Disorder Foundation. Let's go to line number one. Wayne, you're on the air. Oh, thank you, Patty. No problem. Buzz, I'm a first-time caller. Welcome. Uh, I just came home five years ago, and I lived in Ontario, uh, near north, Perry Sound. Maybe you might know it. Home of Bobby Orr, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we're the same age. We went to school together. Is that right? <laughs> well, my wife and served Bobby Orr a clubhouse sandwich at a golf course in Ontario when she was a waiter, a waitress there. <laughs> <laughs> but, and Terry Crisp, well, Terry was... And actually, it's a funny thing you say, Terry Crisp. I ran into Terry Crisp at the Jasper Park Lodge Golf Course. He was the coach of the Calgary Flames at the time. He won the cup there in 89. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Oh, he comes back to Terry Sound every so often. Uh, so does Bobby, certainly. And uh, his dad and him, uh, they Labrador to go fishing. So me and being an avid uh, Nuffy, I used to tie all his flies for him. Cool. <laughs> so no, I was talking to... Uh, I wanted to talk to him about uh, Wayne, you're breaking up, so just give us a shuffle a few feet one way or the other, see if we can clear this up. Okay. Well, I bought a house in Perry Sound. It was a pastor's house. It was well built, everything like that, and it had hot water heat. But I kind of remodeled the whole thing. There was no insulation in it, so I had blown in insulation. And with the water circulator pump, and uh, plus my walls were probably about eight inches thick by the time I got finished. Um, I hooked a little wood stove, then I hooked that into the water line. My... Uh, Heating bill for the winter was three hundred dollars. <laughs> so now I'm home doing the same here to a house. I have a heat pump, 
18,000, and uh, that's quite sufficient. I also have a stone, and uh, I find it uh, fantastic. Whatever people need to do to save some money, because one thing we know for sure, and it's not just the damp type of winters we get, but when you've got the wind howling like is a real key feature here in the winter, which is the biggest problem for when it comes to keeping the home hot, it's not when it's raw cold, it's when it's windy cold uh, becomes the biggest challenge. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, A lot of people now are still building their houses with R12, but for... (laughs) what is it, inch and a half by three and a half, you can put in uh, R20. They have that new stuff out now that you can insulate with that. And it makes a big difference. And just put a, a, what, one inch styrofoam around and put your clapboard back on, you're snug as a bug in a rug. Yeah, I mean, I, you know how this works, though, right? And I completely understand it. When people shop for, whether it be home renovation or considering how and where to build a new home, the sticker shock is very, very real. So some of the traditional methods may indeed feel like cost savings today, but if you look at a five-year window or a 10-year window, you know, making sure your home is energy efficient, absolutely. I hate saying these types of things because it's not necessarily how the world works, but they kind of pay for themselves over time because monthly savings are monthly savings and i get that you might spend a little less up front and be willing to accept higher monthly payments for a variety of things including heating your home but with all the energy efficient upgrades out there for every single piece of material from an insulated concrete foundation the types of insulation the types of appliances you buy all of these things make a real difference over the course of time even if it costs a little bit more up front Oh, it does. But what you save down the road, and especially with the inflation today, you're saving in the long run. Absolutely. So anyhow, Patty, that was my call for today. First time caller. So if I can get used to calling back, I will. Please do. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, where to, Dave, or should we take a break and come back for the mayor? Okay, so there have been different schools of thought regarding the expanded RNC footprint. I think there's some big questions to be asked about what the future presence of the RCMP looks like in the province. We know as a, this story is really curious how it developed and following along. The story started with all the RCMP vacancies. And we were in worse shape than any other province in the country regarding the number of vacancies versus the population. And so it went from there to all of a sudden, and I guess if it has to happen, it has to happen, with the increase of the RNC footprint in different parts of uh, western Newfoundland. And yes, 10 additional officers to be part of it. Some communities are thinking, okay, this is going to work out fine, but there has to be continued investment to ensure that that footprint is stabilized and policing can be done adequately through all the expanded region that 
that the RNC is going to be responsible for. And then we see the RCMP story very specifically when it comes to communities that are going to not see the police presence they once did. One notably is Fogo. So three permanent RCMP officers was once the norm. Now they're going to be covered by a so-called part-time officer being deployed from the detachment in Gander. So there's going to be some obvious concerns. Crime rate and the prevalence of crime on Fogo has been relatively low. And I'll get that to be substantiated by the mayor of Fogo, Andrew Shea, after this break. But there will indeed, when you see that the potential for... When the cat's away and the mice will play and what some of the worries in the community are, we'll hear from the mayor of Fogo right after this. That's Andrew Shea. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the mayor of Fogo. That's Andrew Shea. Mayor Shea, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Yeah, first of all, I'd like to mention the demonstration we had on Thursday night. We had a great turnout. We had over 300 people. Um, we had 11 speakers and a message from Mr. Minister Bragg because he couldn't attend because he's off on sick, sick leave. Uh, we had some great speakers, and uh, it went really well. But uh, what I'm calling about basically is the uh, the news release that was put out by the RCMP, and it was aired a half hour before our demonstration on Thursday night. And the first thing, I think there's some confusing uh, information in the in the uh, release because it says the the RCNP detachment in Fogo is not closing. We know that's not happening. We know that's happening because the RCMP building is shared with the Department of Fisheries and the secretary is shared with the Department of Fisheries. So it's a combined service. So we know the building is not closing. And that's what they're referring to when they're talking about the detachment. And I like people to know that. You know, it's it's confusing the people. Detachment means building. The building is not closing. But the staff, are, the policemen, the officers are leaving and going to be going to Gander. And we will get a patrol when staffing allows. That's what we've been told. That's factual. I was kind of wondering exactly what it meant when they said the detachment wasn't permanently closing. Regardless if you have a building, if there's no one working in it, then for all intents and purposes, it's closed. No, I, re- I, I make the, the comparison to if the school board called out tomorrow and said Fogo Island Central Academy is remaining open. Secretary's staying, but your teachers are in Gander. Yeah, fair enough. It don't make much sense. Like It don't make any sense to us. And then and the second thing is that the Minister of uh, Justice, as I'm talking about one police officer being assigned, remains assigned full-time to the Fogo, for Fogo Island. But he's probably assigned to, in Gander, assigned to Fogo Island. He doesn't say he's living on Fogo Island. And for the minister to make a statement that we got one police officer, even if he's, a, if he's a stationed on Fogo Island, if I make a call tomorrow, he has to call Gander for a backup before he can answer the call. You know, th- this don't make sense. This is not fixing the problem. This is this is just uh, you know using words and other things to the, the you know just to make people confused. So let's just see if I can't put this all together. The reality is, with this new announcement, the officer that will be dispatched to calls. Fogo Island will come from Gander, will never be permanently posted, won't be sleeping overnight, won't have a, a consistent or constant presence. That's the way it's going to be. Every time there's a call, that officer has to make its way from Gander. Yeah, but even if he's on the island, Patty, and gets a call, he can't respond because single officer can't respond without a backup. 
So if he's on the island, he can't do anything. He has to call someone to get a backup to come out here. You know, this doesn't make sense at all. We were told, and I quote, uh, informed that in the very near future, members would be not living on Fogo Island full-time, but they would travel to the island to patrol when staffing allows. In the case of an emergency, a helicopter would send someone, they'd send someone out in a helicopter. That's what we were told. And now we were getting this uh, confusing information in a memo from from the RCMP. And and we don't know how long this this, this is not permanent, they're telling us, but uh, part-time or, you know, can become permanent, you know. This will become permanent because the RCMP are losing about 1,500 members a year and they're turning out about 150 recruits. So how is it going to get better for us? How, how are they going to improve the service with more officers coming back they will open up again? It's not going to happen. So we have to stop this before it happens. So, I mean, I've asked the question out loud is, what does the future presence of the RCMP look like here? Because like most things in this world, when you lose it, it's hard to get it back. So any reduction in permanent full-time presence of an RCMP officer, wherever we're talking, or I guess a pair if we're talking about responding to active calls, what does that actually look like? I mean, is this a stopgap measure for the RNC to expand their footprint on the West Coast? Are there going to be ramped up RCMP recruitment campaigns specifically for this province? Or what does, what does any of this look like? Because the story started i guess innocently enough talking about the number of vacancies now we've seen big groundswell changes yeah but see petty the people like like bay vert now is sharing with springdale springdale is sharing with bay vert three days a week so uh, someone in springdale now has to cover the bay vert peninsula and that that's impossible to do a good job you can't have the same service even with those places they're, they're being downsized but we're not being downsized we're being phased out you know, we, we've been we're, we're basically been told if, if the RCMP recruit more people, then we'll come back. But other than that, we're not coming back. Carmenville closed a year ago. They haven't seen their tree houses are there vacant. Their building's been vacant ever since. They very rarely see a patrol. You know, this is this is this is factual. What I'm telling you is factual. Nobody knows what the future holds regarding crime on the ground. You know, we can forecast what it might look like when there is zero police presence or very limited police presence. But what's the reality of crime in your community at this point? Because I know where I live, you know, with the Stats Canada numbers, the crime severity index is up 6% in this province. In this region, 19. And you can feel it. You can absolutely taste the increase in severe crime around here. How about Fogo? Well, Fogo Island is pretty good. We're on an island. And being on an island with a police presence makes you less likely to commit a crime because where can you go? You know, you're caught on the island and it's easier to solve. But now with police in Grand Falls or Gander, people are going to be looking at the ferry. Oh, police came today. They're gone tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going, to, we're going to have an increase in drink driving, drinking and driving. I've talked to several places that lost their police detachment because of downsizing, because of the number of people in the communities and things like that. And they say that since the police left and no prisons, drinking and driving is up a lot. But there might be no more arrests because there's no one there to do it. So person goes to darts and he says, well, I'm driving home tonight. You know, that's a major concern. Everybody that talks to me, that's the first thing they mention, is driving, drinking and driving and ATVs and skidoos on the road in the wintertime. It's going to be serious. And it's not a problem here now because it's kept down because we have a presence. Yeah, well, I guess the entire concept of if you know the police aren't there to respond, then things that you might think twice or ten times about, you probably don't think twice about because the obvious reality is the the likelihood of getting away with it. Um, So is it true 
based on what you know, that is there any types of calls that a, a single RCMP officer can respond to? There must be some, like, you know, to take a statement if someone broke into your shed or stuff like that. Oh. It's not always the case they need to. Uh, that's, that's coming in the form of a question because I don't know. Yeah, I, but I'd say where he's gone to visit maybe to get a statement or stuff like that, but any call like a uh, domestic violence, he would have definitely need a backup because we have three officers because two is not enough because when one is on duty, the other one might be off duty. So the third officer has to be on Fogo Island so he can back up that officer. So that's how it works. But I, I'd say there's very little that an officer can respond to if there's no backup. And now he's basically hands tied till he gets somebody. And we had a former RCMP officer uh, from Pogo Island who's living here now, you know, basically made a, a speech at the thing and at the at the demonstration. And he says, you know, he'd never seen one closed yet that ever opened again. And and I think he's right. And he's he's probably one of those closed places in when he was in New Brunswick, you know, because of the damn size and population and things like that. But he says, you know, like the crime will increase. Sort of stands to reason. So, you know, and I know there's no replacement for a police officer, but there's a pretty heavy presence for a variety of things uh, regarding municipal bylaw officers. I know there's some communities that have Im- implemented them all the way to doing things like dealing with traffic violations. I know Portugal Coffee St. Phillips is working towards that at this moment in time. Do you have any sort of plan Bs in mind that you're going to pursue, given that you think this is the the eventual outcome is that you won't see the restoration of the RCMP presence in your community, or what? Are you, what's the council thinking? Well, we're thinking we might have a plan B, but it's not necessarily our own police force. But uh, we do have some plans in, in, in place that you know we look for if this don't happen, because we're not taking this uh, the way it's been presented. You know, we we have a meeting scheduled with the. Uh, I'll give you her name now in a second with Jennifer Ebert, the assistant commissioner, on the 29th of. Uh, of uh, this month, and we've asked we've asked Minister Hogan to come out be out to the meeting. You know, we're meeting with them to see if this can be resolved. But the only way to resolve it is that we had to have a police presence on Fogo Island. We're not accepting anything else. You know, they don't, they don't make sense. You know, like, and seems like though, Patty, that rural Canada and rural Newfoundland uh, seem to get hardest hit. You know, we can take it from them because the bigger centres need them. I, I think probably the biggest problem here is probably they can't recruit for Gander. And Gander is much more, needs many more officers. I think if there were six positions offered tomorrow and three were in Gander and three were in Fogo, they'd be filled in Fogo in no time. Well, I mean, I know the, RC- load, you know? the, R- the RCMP have a, a national issue regarding recruitment. We know that to be absolutely true. And you're right. I mean, the urbanization of the country is happening. Some people are doing it out of necessity, maybe to be closer to family, closer to health care, closer to different amenities and services. It's just naturally happening. Uh, that's not to say it's a good or a bad thing. It's just the actual facts of the matter in virtually every province across the country. So we're going to have to grapple with how that really looks and how services are provided because... Different communities have different futures ahead of them. Fogo, with your economy of scale and the population base and the tourism attraction and the co-op and the Shorefast Foundation and all the rest, Fogo has a bright future. Other parts of the province, possibly not. We don't. People are afraid to have that conversation, but it's real. It's happening year over year. It gets worse for many communities. But communities that have a future where they can thrive, we've got to make sure that that is not jeopardized because of things like this. 
Exactly right. We need a plan in place, a plan that works. But there's no plan being put in place. It's just when it happens, just do it. Just go out and don't have, don't consult anyone. We were never consulted on this. We were just police came out and told us. We didn't even know it was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Just came out in a meeting and told us when the hospital and the doctors left. I was coming out Gander Bay Road, and I heard it on VLCM. Doctors were leaving Fogo Island, and I'm the mayor, and I didn't hear it. I didn't know it. Yeah. You know, this this is not the way to do it. We should be talking about this for months and months until it happens and see if we can get a solution instead of saying, this is what they're doing with you, and now you take it or you leave it. We're, we're not changing our mind. And then you come out with statements like, oh, the attachment is staying open. Yeah, the building is staying open. But that don't mean anything. We want a police presence here on Fogo Island to keep this a safe place. Patty, our population with with just uh, summer homes doubles in the summer, and with the with the population with the folk festival we had the weekend and things like that, our population triples. You know, we got a we got a busy place here. It's it's you know, and our people are going to be comfortable here if there's coming here as tourists and that if there's no police presence. I don't know. But, you know, that's something we should look at. But it shouldn't happen where someone comes out and tells you this is what's happened without you knowing and having some say into the matter. Or at least given a amount of time to have the consultations to see what kind of uh, plans there can be or things massaged or some nuance associated or time for transition. And I know some of these things are regarding the RNC expansion is going to be a year in the works, but you're right. Uh, you know, finding out through the news versus finding out through direct communication with those in authority, whether it be the RCMP or the province itself, is probably a missing missing piece of that puzzle and generally is. I uh, appreciate the time, Mayor. Shall you anything else before we say goodbye? No, uh, and, I, and I'd like for some people who have now shared services in the province, you know, we've got shared RCMP like Bayvert and Springdale, Looseport and Twillingate, to call in and see how their services deteriorated. Let people know how they're working, you know? Someone call in and give their, their perspective on it, right? And we welcome the call. Yep. And thank you for your time. My pleasure, Mayor Shea. Take care. Thank you. All right, bye. Bye-bye. As Fargo Mayor, Mayor Andrew Shea, let's take a quick one before we get to the news. Line number four, or not the news, the break. Debbie, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. It's, um, I'm just calling about a dog um, in the area of Carpation Road, Larch Park, Rainingsville Road. It's not my dog, but he's running around. He's a young uh, German Shepherd or a, a German Shepherd uh, cross. He's black. He has a gray collar and a tag, but we couldn't catch him. And he, another man um, tried to flag down a car, so he didn't get hit. So I'm just worried about him. And if everybody, anybody's missing this dog, please uh, come over in the area. I think he's headed down Rennies Mill Road, farther down Carpation Road at this point. So between Riverdale and St. Pat's Ball Park in that area, there's a young German Shepherd bolting around, possibly a bit jittery, maybe you find themselves in traffic. So if that's your dog, head to that area with your buddies and see if you can round them up. Yes, thanks, Patty. My pleasure. Thanks for the call, Debbie. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking cost of living, talk about the fishery, and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the Secretary-Treasurer at the FFAW Unifor. That's Jason Spingle. Jason, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. I hope you've been having a good summer. So far, so good. Thanks very much. Hope the same for you. Before we get into COD and the like, let's talk about the changes that are now coming regarding employment insurance. Yeah, absolutely going to be uh, devastating for many of our members. That's why we've immediately called for that stabilization. Um, I mean, we're attributing it to, um, you know, a larger number of um, migrant workers and increase in employment connected to summer tourism and hospitality. Uh, however, uh, to uh, now for workers uh, to require 
um, in the um, standard claim, labor claim, if you will, uh, to go from 420 to 455 hours. Uh, basically, this is going to mean, and a divisor from 14 to 15 weeks. This is going to be, uh, for many, many of our members, plant workers in particular, they're going to have upwards of six weeks less benefits. And uh, over the past month, Patty, I've had an opportunity to uh, to visit uh, uh, four plants at least all throughout the region, uh, processing uh, crab, actually going to a cod plant today, actually, and look at some cod but uh, with our staff. But in any case, you know, we, we, we haven't, uh, and I would say, uh, I would say, uh, you know, I would leave it up for the whole province to look at the work and the commitment and professionalism of our plant workers. And, they, and I would say in general, we haven't given them in particular the credit that they deserve. Uh, it, is a, it is a seasonal industry. Uh, you know, the, cra- the fish needs to be processed as it's coming in. And uh, it doesn't matter, uh, irrespective of the delay, but there was more pressure on them this year uh, with uh, with the uh, delay due to the tie-up with crab. But, uh, you know, it's still uh, many of these workers working nine, ten-hour days and upwards of 20 days straight to make and doing a great job and i had a you know opportunity to speak to them and and again these are the people that are solidifying the new dollars for our economy again in a short uh, seasonal industry and uh, that's probably never going to change to a large degree and uh, we need to make sure that they're protected uh, so this EI issue, we're, we're, we have to get this dealt with. We can't put uh, people, particularly with a difficult year that there's been, because they were without income this spring through no fault of their own and, uh, and the processing workers. And now um, for them to look at the prospect of not having as many weeks of benefits and running out, say, in January would be dev- devastating. So this, uh, our, our government and our MPs uh, need to make sure that this is stabilized, leave it where it's at, the 420 hours, divisor by 14. And, I, you know, we're working on more permanent solutions to secure, uh, uh, part of the, you know, uh, a living for, for plant workers and other seasonal workers that particularly bring in the new dollars. And, you know, and it's also an impact on harvesters. Uh, harvesters are going to need uh, a minimum, um, a higher minimum, uh, $200 more. And again, the divisor may impact, uh, will impact some harvesters as well. It's a you know, different system with the, the value uh, over uh, versus uh, necessarily amount of hours or week, uh, amount of hours, but it's still, still an impact. So we need stabilization there. Or, uh, you know, and I just listened to the news driving in here this morning. Uh, you know that uh, Bank of Canada is saying that uh, the uh, the economy is not cooling off to, for the, to cool down the inflation. They may look at raising interest rates, and like I said, it's. Uh there's a lot of stress on people, and uh, we need to, to work to try to minimize that. Was this automatically triggered with the adjustment on the employment rate uh, in August? Yeah, it's uh, so every month, as I understand, these uh, these uh, calculations go in. This happened on August 6th. I think the next one is, you know, uh, September 8th, I believe. I checked on that there this morning. I was informed. So I don't know if it'll revert back, but in any case. It's been many, many years. And the other point I wanted to make as well is that, you know, here in our province, again, and I, and I outlined the new dollars, you and I, I think, uh, talked about that in the fishing industry, our harvesters and plant workers in particular, to bring in these new dollars. There are editors as well, but, uh, you know, recognize recognize everyone who bringing in the new dollars there. 
And uh, what I would say is is that in COVID, which is, uh, you know, I've got to remind myself sometimes about, like I said, uh, having to put on the mask and go get groceries and, and the worry we all had there, you know, um, uh, is uh, the fishing industry was one of the first industries said, nope, you have to go back to work. You have to take that risk. And they did. And really, you know, and I think this whole issue with the markets and everything is part of the deal with COVID. I mean, uh, I'm not going to give a, you know, economic analysis, but I think we all agree to to a point that, that that's the case. So, uh, and you know, I point out the economic help we're looking for 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 our harvesters and plant workers. Um, let's say this 70% increase in the price of crab. Uh, we haven't seen that type of decline. Uh, since the impact of the moratorium. So. Well, I mean, COVID absolutely did play a role. It's been about a 180 um, where the market was, for for sure, uh, products like crab, because it was the strength of the retail sector gave that whopping big price, and it's kind of flip-flopped back to what it traditionally has been. So I would suggest the pandemic has had a massive implication here. Uh, I would think, I don't know, I'm not involved in these conversations, but is part of your argument an exemption offered to a very specific group if we're just talking about uh, fish plant workers because there's going to be these types of uh, triggered adjustments to employment whether it be from 4, uh, 420 to 435 or 455 or what have you so are are you thinking that the feds will offer an exemption to a very specific group for a very uh, specific oh, reason I like you know access to product well or? you know i'm we're representing our members here for sure but i, I as i outlined uh, I think it's the same type of challenges uh, for many seasonal workers, and uh, and I think just they should leave the 420 and the 14 um, for our province, um, given given all the economic difficulties and some of the points that I just outlined. So, yeah, uh, I mean I think uh, I think we we support that for sure, and I think that's the easier thing for them to do is just to to maintain that uh, status quo, if you will. Uh, okay, and moving off from that important issue, on to what we're hearing from harvesters who are out there getting their weekly uh, catch-a-cut, trying to catch their full quota, but can't find anywhere to sell it. This is absolutely, in large part, to do with the six-week tie-up now that the crab season has been extended, still another 10 million pounds to be processed. About half the capelin uh, tack has been landed. People are not even going after the cod if they got nowhere to sell it. So was this not a foreseeable outcome when the union, was pretty much responsible for asking their members in a form of solidarity to stay tied up until you came up with a negotiated or settlement on price. So did the union forecast this and understood this was absolutely going to be part and parcel with the six-week tie-up? So uh, these issues uh, are not necessarily new. Over the past couple of years in particular, we've had similar issues. Uh, and this is the first year we've had this type of a tie-up in crab. Um, you know, there's there's a couple of different aspects. I know there's issues with, um, you know, and again, uh, workers um, working at Crab, and I think, you know, some of the companies are doing what they can. There's some, some of those challenges are real. There's other cases where, there, you know, uh, we do, uh, we look into this, and there's basically a buyer not buying from a harvester because they didn't, buy their crab or the harvester sold their crab to someone else and then they won't buy their cod so again it goes back to something you know that we've been talking about is that it's the it's a privilege to have a processing license uh, and you know as we said to the provincial government that's what we're dealing with the premier on absolutely uh, need to be uh, conditions associated with having that privilege and uh, you know so uh, 
I think now uh, that uh, things are going better overall with the COD, but it's far from perfect. But again, it was far from perfect last year. So we need to look at this now. As I, you know, I was on the fisheries broadcast the other day. Uh, one of the positive things with cod, for sure, I spoke to a harvester over 50 years on the Bayvert Peninsula, and the same, similar reports everywhere. And that, uh, you know, and, and I hear that DFO is going to get their survey back on track. But what we're seeing again is even better than what we saw last year. It was a definite improvement. Uh, right from uh, Renews, just south of us here in St. John's, uh, where there's an abundance of cod from the start, right up to Black Tickle again. Uh, abundance of cod. I've been uh, talking to harvesters, looking at pictures on the Facebook, just phenomenal quality and size of cod. And we have a great resource. But, you know, we, we don't have a lot of tech right now, and I expect that that's going to increase as well. I point out that, you know, I uh, firmly believe that we're going to get a, a reasonable share of the, uh, the redfish resource that's in the Gulf. And we're really going to be looking at uh, tens of thousands of more tons of groundfish. So the, as a part of the crab formula and working through these issues, uh, we also need to look at a plan for sure. Uh, because, uh, you know, we know that uh, there are are some legitimate issues with worker shortages and our workers are getting old. And, you know, I don't think, uh, I think it's very respectable to to someone going to say at 68 or 70, but I'm finally retiring, right? Um, And uh, we got a lot of people still working hard in that age group and certainly commend them. So, uh, so, you know, we knew that there would be... uh, the similar challenges, but I think uh, some of them are not necessarily as uh, as legitimate as as they're made out to be. As just that there's a tie up and now the delay is causing this. Uh, but you know um, we're working through them, and uh, we had to look at a bigger plan because, um, like I said, cod, uh, northern cod in particular. Um, and I hear a great sign of cod in in uh, 3PS as well. So hopefully that'll recover there. And we look at uh, lobster increasing significantly, redfish, and uh, our crab resource is very healthy. So we have a lot of uh, a lot of uh, potential more fish to process in the coming years. That's my take on it. Very quickly, is there a continued second year moratorium on the Gulf cod? Second year uh, moratorium on Gulf cod. Um, we're, you know, it's uh, some decent reports in areas, but there's no doubt about it that. Uh, uh, you know, lobster is increasing uh, significantly. That's been a, that's been a boost to a lot of harvesters. Halibut resource has exploded, and that continues to be uh, show the similar signs. Uh, we look at um, some of the aspects with Gulf Cod. We have an influx of gray seals. As Patty, you know, I'm from the Labrador Straits area. And uh, we were just down last week uh, for a bit of vacation there, and uh, I didn't go out and boat, but my brother was out, and he sent me the pictures to verify the stories that I've been hearing of schools of gray seals. Um, and th- these are the seals known to be uh, that are basically, you know, if you talk to harvesters in PEI in New Brunswick, which I have through the meetings dealing with the golf over the years, they'll say, this is where our ground fish has gone. So we're seeing these type of things. The other thing uh, happened a few years ago. I thought it might have been an anomaly, but striped sea bass, which uh, inhabit, uh, again, Nova Scotia. Uh, I don't think they come much farther overall than Cape Breton. Uh, They're back on the coast again. People are seeing them uh, at the wharves, catching them when they're trout fishing or or, uh, fishing, uh, recreational fishing. Uh, these striped sea bass and uh, so this is uh, pointing to warmer conditions and a change in our environment so 
Uh, we'll see what happens there, but that's right. That's an opportunity, and that's really affecting harvesters, particularly on my co- you know, my home coast, I would say, where I grew up, where there is no lobster fishery, and on the tip of the peninsula on the other side, again, where there's minimal, a minimal lobster fishery. So, uh, you know, there's... there's um, there have been difficult situation there with the amount of resource for a long time in those areas in particular. Appreciate the time, Jason. Next time we talk, I'd like to know about the status of any change or conversation with the uh, ASP and the provincial government to once and for all put a more modern, workable, acceptable price-setting scheme in place, because if not, the, ver- the likelihood of this uh, manifesting itself again next year is pretty high. I appreciate the time this morning. We'll pick that up another time. Oh, that's the priority, and I'd just like to say we look forward to meeting uh, the new Federal Minister of Fisheries as well. We've got that in the, in the, you know, on, in the queue, if you will, and uh, and we'll look forward to updating you. That's that's our focus uh, for the upcoming weeks and months. Uh, Patty, thank you very much. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Take care. Okay, bye bye. Jason Spingle, Secretary Treasurer at the FFAW. FFAW. Bill, you stay right there. We're going to talk cost of living with that caller after this, and then we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Bill. You're on the air. Hello. Hello. How you doing? I'm doing great. You? This one, I got a carpenter doing some stuff for me, and he's got to be the worst carpenter I've ever met in his life. He wastes material, he takes two lines, and he makes mistakes, and he's me. Uh, how you doing? Uh, listen, I, call, actually, I want to answer the body with uh, the, the, uh, the police presence first before I start. Okay. That's okay. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I, he's not wrong. This is absolutely true. It's like small little towns. People know what should, uh, 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 unless they change it. The last I heard, the, the, the RCMP in our local area is uh, after 1 a.m., uh, somebody's on call. So basically, if, you, if something happens, he had to get out of bed, wait for backup. And so, anyway, nobody's going to show up to catch anybody doing anything. But, and and I, I, I'm an advocate of like local areas, non attached to. Uh, like uh, uh, separate from the the government, like 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 uh, lack of a better term, sheriffs or something. So like somebody just around that, not necessarily uh, like a full time position funded by the government or anything. Like if if you got to check into something or stop somebody, then you know you you know there's a per diem or something. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I mean, uh, the mayor of Fogo actually asked for municipal leaders and communities that are using shared services, whether it be police or otherwise, to let us know how it's going. So it's better for them if they have the opportunity to call to share their actual experiences, you know, rather than me guess at how things are going out there. So that's what we're going to try to figure out. Yeah, no, I, I get it, but there's like somebody that knows the area. Like, so sometimes, I mean, there's there's real. There, there, as opposed to when we were growing up, I mean, there's real serious crime going on, and people. But like, uh, if, and when the RCMP reacts to something, like some 18 year old kid doing something stupid, might not a a, a a a local person be like, okay, okay, we can work this out and, and make everything right, and and then not not uh, tag somebody for the rest of their life. With, but I mean, somebody you got some guys that are like you said, catch release. Well, I don't know if you said sorry. It's like, but uh, th- I mean, these guys are just doing their job. Makes sense. It's like, uh, 
and uh, and they don't know what to do. And if somebody's not properly legally represented, et cetera, et cetera, uh, they, uh, I mean, they get the tag for the rest of their life because uh, you've come up with all kind of silly examples. We've all done stupid stuff when we're kids, hey, Patty? Yes, is the short answer to that. Um, <laughs> you know, catch and release, that kind of term. I mean, we hear that all the time. The fact of the matter is, is that most times when we hear of, and we see the perp walk, for instance, on the, uh, in the evening news, mm-hmm. is that part of the charges are, you know, breaking breach of, the, uh, breach of probation and or whatever conditions they were released on. Add to it, Absolutely. in Her Majesty's Penitentiary, we're told that some somewhere in the neighborhood, 60% of those in the penitentiary are on remand. So we've got people that have never even seen the inside of a courtroom yet. So there's, there's a big complicated issue there. Absolutely, and that's that, that, like, that, that's you're you're, you're going big picture, which is but like little stuff. Like, I, I'll give you an example now. That, like uh, there's all this crime, there's stuff going on, and then the police, the, the resources, the budgets get uh, wasted on petty stuff. And I'll give you a prime example, and this is a shot over across somebody's bow, by the way. Uh, the uh, a few weeks ago, I was looked at the RCMP was in my driveway, local small town, which is bad enough. I went out. And it was a summons from the uh, orchestrated by. Uh, well, I, I know for a fact that it was the uh, that the, the, law, the lawyers were representing the the municipality here. I went in, faced it. Of course, I, it was wrong. It was a, anyway. They, they, when they realized I wasn't going to accept uh, accept what it was, it was uh, the, the town. They dropped it anyway. So, but all the money that was wasted. Over over the process, like little things like that. You like if I wanted to look down the road now and say, "Oh, gee, I, this is going on." I, I called our CMP on this guy, and nothing's really going to come out of it. And at the same time, there's a guy uh, just robbing stores and vandalizing stuff all through the communities at nighttime, and they don't have the uh, the, the funds to do it. Yeah, well, I mean, I just think, you know, sometimes we try not to go straight up big picture because there's some of the more key focus areas need to be a bigger part of the conversation. But, I mean, I just saw a a group calling out for more attention to and support and understanding of how many youth are involved with more serious crimes these days. So, anyway, before I run out of time, Bill, I want to give you a chance to talk cost of living on top of the criminal justice issue because i got to get to the break. No, I was just—I uh, was looking at a blurb from uh, Christopher Freeland recently. It was uh, like uh, over two dollar uh, liter gasoline could be a good thing, so people would uh, would see uh, the, the the high cost of climate change, blah blah blah. And it really gets under my skin because most people, like the average Joes, are not paying attention and whatnot. And everybody's just trying to protect theirs and build a little better, and which is fair. But, and I, I, I firmly believe it's, it's what the system wants because you imagine, Patty, sitting down now and you got two kids and you got to go work every day and you make 15 bucks. But that, that, that ter- so you got little kids who are not only hungry, they're understimulated because it, if it takes one cent to do something that's, that's a positive impact on them, they can't do it. And it's like, but everybody's focused, hyper-focused on, okay, my, my, what count my dollars and, and, and build on me. And, and it's, it, it's, that, that's respectable. I mean, that's the way it should be. But the current system, it, it, it's, it, it's horrible. Like, I mean, I respect anybody that, that is a soil, earn your keep, and, and you earn it. And it, even uh, 
people that are above the the the, the poverty threshold. To, I mean, if you count them, I'm looking at every time I earn a dollar, I probably literally owns thirty cents. Yeah, and I mean, to add to it, the level of uh, household debt in this country, excluding mortgages, is really, really punishing. Sometimes, you know, Christian Freeland and many, many others, the some of the comments just feel like it's straight-up ivory tower stuff. Like, right on. I mean, honest to God, some of those thoughts... Aristocratic. Yeah, aristocratic is probably a fair characterization as well. Bill, i got to get to the break, but I'll give you the final word. Go ahead. Uh, just well, party politics. We, we need a we need a fundamental system, uh, change in our system. But start I, I, starting at the, at the base level. When they're talking about growing these little uh, communities, we could be at it. We could we could be we could be the, the, the Newfoundland. We we could if we had two thousand people in my little town, and 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 they could it's just we could. We we could account for them and they make them make them prosperous, happy, healthy lives. Here, here. Appreciate your call this morning. Good luck with the contractor. Okay, thanks, Bill. All right, bye. Okay, we'll see you, buddy. Uh, okay, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, good opportunity for you to get on the program. The topic is entirely up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go to line number one. Good morning, Zonia. You're on the air. Hi, I'm first time caller. I got a quick question for you. Sure. Um, you were talking about the heat pump, and I missed some of it, but uh, we live in Newfoundland. We're seniors, and I did see online something about click one, and you can get a uh, reimbursement for like up to 5700 Is that a legit company? Well, there, I mean, that might be under the envelope of what the Greener Homes Grant is, if that's, the, you know, it's one of the numbers used inside of that group. But I'll tell you what the best thing to do is, Zonia. The companies that sell and install these types of units, heat pumps, mini splits and whatnot, they actually will also walk you through the entire process of what's out there for support, whether it be federal monies or stackable programs here provincially. So there's lots out there, and some of it's a little bit complicated, but these companies, they'll walk you through it. So they've got a full suite of offerings, whether it be cold air contracting, like I mentioned uh, all the time, even though I've never met anyone from the company, it just comes to my mind. So if you want to help navigate the pots of money that's out there, they'll help you do it. Okay. And as you consider whether or not it's right for you. Okay. And one quick question too as well. Uh, we have wood and oil now. Do you have to get rid of your wood and oil to if it is under the greener homes there'll be there'll be no implication regarding wood but for some of the transition monies for for instance if you're going to move away from oil in full then yes you'll have to remove everything the tank and all the oil in it and all the rest of it but not every program means that you have to do that so that's why with all the different programs you can sit down with these people they'll tell you know you talk about what your hopes are they'll walk you through the pots of money and the implications of so whether that means removal of your all your oil fired generating issues inside your home or not because not every program requires that okay perfect so in order for me to avail of that do you have to do i just call because i'm in gross more national park so do you have to just get a local person who installs the heat pumps and they would know about it is that what you're saying absolutely yeah and okay, you can perfect. you can probably do a lot of that on the telephone Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all you do. My pleasure. I appreciate your time. 
Have a great day. You too, Zonia. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Yeah, I mean, there are so many programs. I mean, the most recent big announcement here was that $157 million, and there's been some massaging required inside of that program. You know, that's a, for many people, it's a so-called, it's a good one because it addressed the concern that many people had is, well, I don't have the upfront money to then try to recoup it in the form of a rebate, but on that particular package of money, you can bill directly because it's been administered by Take Charge and Isle, and so you can build, your installer can build them directly. Now, there's all kinds of other programs, Canada Greener Grants, uh, grant, Greener Homes Grant money is out there. There's a bunch of issues there with regarding upfront inspections and all that kind of stuff, so the really best advice that I can give anyone on that stuff is if, okay, is if you simply decide whether or not you want to even explore it. Because for some people, they might think, well, this is an opportunity, you know, take advantage of some monies that is, are out there. But if, if, you, if you're not inclined to actually go ahead and pull the trigger and do it, you don't have to. Most of these companies will actually happily try to walk you through it. And, of course, to paint the picture where it would be attractive to you on a, vr- a variety of fronts, including financially. So that, I think, has always been the best play. I have a folder here on my computer that has uh, all these different pots of money that have been brought forward. Some have expired. Some continue on. Some are stackable. So there are programs out there, if folks are so inclined, to give it some thought and give it some consideration. And they'll help you navigate it, you know, because that's the whole issue of the customer service in an effort to try to get your business. They have to be aware of all the different pots of money and how you can take advantage and what the process is, what the implications are down the line. Very quickly before we get to the news. And I mentioned off the top. The, all the new words now part of my vernacular as a grocery shopper beyond food inflation now to include shrinkflation, sh- uh, shelfflation, and skimpflation. I know it's a bit of a tangle, right? We're going to speak with the person who actually wrote this particular news story. And we've had him on the program in the past. He's the senior director of Agri-Food Analytics Lab and a professor of food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University. That's Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. He's coming up right after the 1130 news. Before we get to that... Someone asked me why I purposefully exaggerate the importance of one issue or another. I try not to, I mean, because that's kind of tiring for when I listen to it. It would be much much more tiring to even uh, mentally approach uh, issues that way. And it's regarding absenteeism. So the emailer basically said, people have always been absent from school. Yeah, but, you know, we used to walk around on the front seat of the Suburban while Dad smoked his pipe with no seatbelt on. Uh, We don't do that anymore. So the issue here is about the chronic absenteeism. Because there's a difference. You miss a day here or there, or you maybe your folks haul you out of school for a long weekend to go up to the cabin, or that kind of stuff. And yes, people will be absent from school, 100%. The issue here is, as highlighted by the Child and Youth Advocate, not me, is what chronic absenteeism looks like in this province. And this is back in uh, uh, 2019 when then-child youth advocate Jackie Lake Kavanaugh released this report. Her office said that around 10% or 6,600 of the province's children missed a month or more of school on average. And she called it a significant problem, and it is. She speaks to the complexities of it, but importantly, a couple of things. Is we have not figured out how to compile uh, data or a spreadsheet or have a real firm understanding of why individual children would be chronically absent. A month is a lot of time to miss from school. So if you add in PD days, you add in uh, the breaks for Easter and Christmas, you add in snow days and all the rest, that month of missing regularly scheduled school can add up to much more than that. So we know that to be true. So understanding how and why you miss school and to try to address that concern with individual students, 
because it could be anything, right? Why you, why you didn't go to school that day. But the problem for the entirety of the society is the global research that points to the fact if you're chronically absent in grade six, 75% of those children will not get through high school. That's a problem. It doesn't matter if you have a kid in the K-12 system or have any real concerns about it because our long-term security, viability, and prosperity has a direct link to the quality and caliber of education. So if you have attentive students that do their level best to get to school each and every day as best possible and when they're not sick and they try to do as best they can, they'll, they're going to be major league contributors. If you don't get through high school, we know the unfortunate reality is here, as determined by the folks at the health accord and the social determinants of health, one of them is your level of education. So the thought is, not only to acknowledge that this is a problem and what we can do about it, but we have to have an understanding about what 75% of those non-high school graduates do and end up, and what, what is their lot in life. And it's not to be judgmental, it's try to address a root cause issue before it manifests itself in more interaction with the healthcare system, possibly the criminal justice system, possibly a lifelong reliance on social safety nets. So again, what we're trying to do in an effort to save money, be safer, be healthier, have more productivity issues addressed, knowing why kids are not in school, and what we can do about it should be a big deal. And that's not sensationalizing a problem. That's addressing what is a real documented issue as per Jackie Lake Kavanaugh and others. When this report first came out, in September of 2019, absenteeism about 6%. That has blown up demonstrably throughout the course of the pandemic and not just here across the country. So that's not trying to pump the loud pedal or the gas pedal on an issue just for the sake of. I just think that if we really dig into the numbers, it becomes a massive issue. I would check in on the Twitter feed. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, we're going to be joined on the line by Dr. Sylvain Charlebois to talk about what's happening inside the grocery stores. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Davis just on the phone organizing our conversation with our guest. Oh, there he is. Okay, off we go. So we've added to our vernacular today, not in an effort to confuse, but in an effort to understand and to break down the issues surrounding pricing and the prices we pay inside the grocery store. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab and Professor of Food Distribution and Policy at uh, Dalhousie University. That's Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. Dr. Charlebois, welcome to the show. You're on the air. Thank you very much. We've talked in the past, and you've broken down, you know, issues regarding profitability in the grocery store chains and what that what that complements insofar as pricing. But you've added three more words to my vocab here this morning: shrinkflation, shelfflation, and skimpflation. Let's start off with shrinkflation because this is one thing. You know, when you lose it, it's hard to get it back. The reduction in the size of the product, albeit with an increased price, is a real problem in the grocery store. What do you mean by shrinkflation? Shrinkflation basically is uh, is a strategy used by food manufacturers to reduce quantities uh, without affecting pricing, essentially. I think a lot of people uh, would have noticed that uh, you're getting less for the same amount of, uh, of money uh, at the grocery store. So instead of 
say, 560 to 600 grams of ice cream, you're getting 450 grams instead. But the prices remain the same. That, that would be shrinkflation. Is this something new? Because I remember, you know, back in the day of everyone switching to the light or the diet variety. It turns out that was more marketing than it was reality regarding nutritional value or sodium or fats or whatever the case may be. So is this new or has it been further exasperated in the last number of years? Uh, it, it goes in cycles. You're, you're absolutely right. This is not a new strategy. It's been going on for decades. But uh, we do go through cycles. Uh, whenever input costs go up, so grain prices, for example, cocoa prices, things like that, manufacturers will actually look for ways to save money as much as possible and reduce manufacturing costs, essentially. And uh, But we, we're just ending a, a new cycle right now because of, of the invasion of Ukraine. Grain prices did go up, and so we saw a significant number of of shrinkflation cases uh, across the country, including in Newfoundland. And complications with droughts and floods and other interruptions in the so-called supply chain. So let's talk shelfflation. Shelfflation is basically uh, when uh, supply chain issues, problems, will impact the shelf life of food products, mainly produce. Uh, I'm sure many of your listeners would have noticed that uh, in recent years, it's tougher to get fresh products, or if you buy a product, uh, once you bring that product home, it may actually not last as long. You have to eat it right away. Or, for example, with dairy, sometimes best before dates don't apply because uh, the product has actually turned sour already. Uh, it actually has happened to, to, to us at home. Uh, facts. Well, you buy a carton of milk and the milk is, is already bad even before the best before date. So that's probably due to the fact that that milk was left on a dock for too long or was left in a truck for too long and you know, things like that. So these things do happen from time to time. Uh, it, it is called shelfflation, but it ends up costing more money to consumers because you have to throw a, la- a lot more uh, food away. There has been some adjustment to the impact of the breadbasket of Europe and the exportation of grains from Ukraine. How complicated are the supply issues continuing, the whole supply chain? Because I know when you have droughts and floods and then the implication of price when you import something from South America through the United States, the conversion of the dollar, next thing you know, I pay some of that freight, we'll call it, uh, carriage. So are the supply chain issues as drastic as they were, say, in the middle of 21 when we were all dealing with different moving parts and confusion and unknowns regarding the, the pandemic? I, I, I would say that right now the situation is much, uh, much better. Uh, things have improved immensely. Uh, you don't have uh, the delays that, that we saw at port, different ports, uh, whether it's in uh, Halifax, Montreal. Uh, obviously, Vancouver uh, was uh, was impacted by, by a recent strike. So there are delays there, but if you look at Los Angeles, Seattle, uh, New York, delays are 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 much more manageable now. So uh, and and I'm I suspect that people have started to notice.
is that uh, when you order something, you get it much qu- much more quickly than before. When we talk about shelfflation, you know, you eyeball things, whether it be fruit or vegetables, and dairy products come with their own unique concerns. But what would you like to say to Canadians regarding best before dates? I try to talk about this because I used to be one of those folks. <laughs> Every best before date, when we were on that date or past it, that was it. That product was going to the landfill. When we know that there's two or three million tons of edible food discarded every year in this country. How should we approach that best before? Because it doesn't mean expired. Well, exactly. Best before doesn't mean that after, essentially. So uh, if you're you're capable of trusting your senses, uh, and what I mean by that, are you healthy enough? Uh, Is your immune system strong enough? You can actually rely on your senses uh, to know whether or not a product is is good to eat or not. Uh, If it's open, I mean, I basically uh, opened up a a package of yogurt that was one month after the best before date, but it was unopened. Uh, But once it's open, of course, uh, the fresh quality of the product may be compromised. You have to be careful there. But uh, the best before date is just an indicator uh, for people to consider, but uh, it shouldn't be a, a, a driving factor people to waste more food. Let's get to the final flation, and that's the skimpflation. I know that this has long been part of it, and you point to a very specific product, and that was E.D. Smith's pumpkin pie filling recipe. The shoot-up and cost of vegetable oil has made that go from its third position to the sixth position. Water takes on a more prominent role, moving to the third primary ingredient. So this has long been the case. You know, massaging the formula, not only because of input costs, but massaging the formula for profitability. Hopefully it's subtle enough that your customers won't walk away from your product, but there's also some pending regulatory requirements that are possibly driving this skimflation. Tell us about the regulatory issues first. Well, yeah. So on, on the one side, of course, manufacturers have to comply uh, with uh, with new regulations related to fat content, sodium content, and, and sugar. So you have to reformulate all the time. Reformulating products is not new, but uh, what uh, people have noticed is that sometimes uh, some more expensive ingredients are replaced by, well, cheaper ingredients like water, for example. And so, yes, uh, the intent is to save money, but it's not just that. Uh, Skimflation exists because, well, uh, companies have to change, reformulate products all the time. So again, not a new strategy, probably a new term, but not a new strategy. It's been going on for many, many years. Uh, But certainly, uh, I would encourage people to look at uh, an ingredient list carefully, uh, maybe one or two a week, you know, just to educate yourself and and, and keep track of some of the things that are changing. Because a lot of people are wondering, okay, uh, this product tastes differently than a few years ago. it is not your imagination. Uh, texture will change, taste will change as well as a result of skimflation. And so we're probably going to see more of this when the pending regulations take effect in January 2026. And that's going to be, you know, uh, front of package labeling, sodium, sugar, saturated fat, and the like. When when we hear these words, and I know you've examined grocery store profits. I mean, we know revenues are up. The Competition Bureau says that profits are up, not, not massively, but meaningfully. But these types of things... This kind of takes, I think, some of the focus off the grocery store chains and brings it back to the individual food manufacturers because they are absolutely as big a part of the price issues as the grocery stores. Oh, absolutely. And I think a lot of people are are starting to 
have that kind of conversation. It's not just about grocery stores. It's, uh, I mean, there's more to it than just retailing food. Uh, uh, manufacturers, distributors, wholesalers, farmers, uh, they're all involved here. And, uh, and when you look at the entire spectrum, you quickly realize that that greedflation or abuse or profiteering is not, is not like a simple concept or food inflation is not a simple concept. There's more to it than just blaming one player uh, within a much broader food system. It's fascinating when you try to break down every contributing factor into the price of food. I don't know if this is in your ballywick, but you know some big food retailers, including the Costco's or pardon me, the yeah, Costco's and Shoppers, Walmart's. What do you make of the increased number of self checkouts, or is that even something you care about? Because you know we've heard stories about civil liberties. You don't have to stop and show your receipt and have your bag dug through. But those implications, though, they will indeed deal with profitability for these food retailers. So any thoughts on the, the, the increase in the numbers of these self-checkouts? Actually, it is a form of skimflation. Uh, okay. Skimflation doesn't just impact food. It impacts service as well. And I think a lot of people have noticed that more and more grocers are trying to cut corners, uh, making sure that they can provide the service uh, that people need, but uh, they are reducing costs. And so, uh, but in also COVID, really the pandemic has gotten a lot of people to think differently about human interaction. Uh, so a lot of people, a fewer, fewer people actually uh, mind uh, self-checkouts. More and more people don't mind them at all. And so, and grocers know that and, and they're adjusting as a result. Yeah, the one issue for me is I don't want to be made to feel like a criminal because, you know, you didn't see me check out my stuff. And we hear those stories across the country. And basically the advice is you don't owe anybody anything. Unless they saw you doing something wrong, just proceed on your merry way. Uh, anything else you'd like to say this morning, Dr. Charlevoix, before we say goodbye? Yeah, I, I think it's important to trust people. Uh, I, I think every Canadian deserves uh, a, a safe um experience of the grocery store I don't think anyone wants to feel like Big Brother's watching that's not pleasant at all not at all appreciate the time this morning Doc Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab and Professor in Food Distribution and Policy at Dalhousie University. Let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, uh, Tony Wakeham's in the queue. Of course, he's the PC member for Stephenville port port and one of three candidates to be the next permanent leader of, this, of the Conservative Party, the Progressive Conservative Party of the province. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the PC member for Stephenville port port He's also one of the leadership candidates. That's Tony Wakeham. Good morning, Tony. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. I just wanted to call in today. Today is the last day for registration sign-ups to the PC party to uh, register to vote in the uh, upcoming leadership, and uh, that ends today at 5 o'clock. So I encourage anybody who's interested in voting to uh, get, a, get go on the PC party website or call the party direct and uh, register to vote. And uh, in saying so, I wanted to take this opportunity to thank people all over this province for their uh, great support and and great discussions that we've had. As I've traveled about, I've heard lots of challenges that people are facing, but two of them continue to rise to the top, of course, and those are the cost of living and health care. And it was on the healthcare piece uh, that I called in particularly about today, because last week on your show, uh, you had an opportunity and you were talking about home care. 
and I was traveling on the road and listening to the conversation. And, and when we find ourselves in a situation where home care workers in this province can make more money and have better benefits working at a fast food restaurant than they can providing home support, we have a problem. And I think it's time that government, uh, the cabinet, if they're meeting this summer and others, really have a look at that service and how do we keep people in their homes longer? Because that is one of the key pieces to our whole healthcare system. And if that's a model we believe in, then we're going to have to invest in it. We're going to have to invest in home support workers so that we can, they can turn that from just simply a job to a career and encourage people to go into that field of work. Because certainly looking after our seniors and our elderly is one of the most important things we can do. Not to split hairs, but even when we say we need to invest in X, Y, or Z, when we're talking about aging, it's probably even more accurate, I'll, I'll offer this as an opinion, I'll get your reaction, to say we just simply reallocate the funds we already spend. Because institutionalizing somebody and the associated costs with that compared to the required supports to stay in your own home, we're probably up money. Patty, you're absolutely right. When I say that about investing, it's not about spending new money. It's about taking the money that we're already spending and spending it differently. And when we talk about home support and people staying in their homes longer, that that keeps them healthier, in my opinion, because they they get to live at home and they get the same environment without having to institutionalize somebody uh, perhaps sooner than they need it to be. And that goes again, you know, when we talk about the steps of, of, of how we move people, because we also have personal care homes all over this province, beautiful facilities that people have invested in that have vacant vacancies. And yet at the same time, we have people occupying acute care beds at a significantly higher cost. So we have to start looking at how do we utilize the infrastructure and the programs that we have and make them more complete to take advantage of those. It's not always about building more. It's about taking advantage of what we have and finding different ways to do it. You know, I, I think there's some move afoot. We've heard from Susan Walsh, the seniors advocate, talking with some of her colleagues in the country about the possibility to finally get a bit of federal guidance on this stuff because we have a national issue, it requires national attention, aging in place, tax credits for starters, doing some real breakdown, not cocktail na- napkin math, but a real breakdown of how much it costs to operate a bed in a long-term care facility, whether it be on the dementia ward or otherwise, compared to if I have 16 hours but 24 would keep me in my home what that costs and the cost comparison because then there's stuff you can't even factor in with dollars and cents how happy you are how safe you are the dignified life that you're living so there's a conversation to be had here you know planning for the future isn't just how many long-term long-term care beds we're going to need we're going to need some of course we are because that might be an absolute requirement based on medical need and what have you but we're just sort of relying on the old traditional go-to method of growing old when that's changing and rightfully so And that's exactly what's happening now. We have a home support program. We have a home care program. Part of the challenge is getting approved for home care. But the second part of the challenge is finding a home care worker in there for many people. And and so those things go hand in hand because you're absolutely right. The longer we can keep someone in their own home, it is better for that individual 
forget never mind the fact that it's actually probably less expensive than putting them in a institutional facility it is a better form of care and then having people available to come see them on a regular basis i mean even to go so far as to start thinking about how we might use our primary uh, care paramedics and advanced care paramedics and home visits especially in rural Newfoundland and other places there are so many different ways that we can redesign this healthcare system that isn't simply about money i spoke recently with a emergency room nurse at st Clair's and talked about some of the things that they would see that could improve the efficiency. None of it had to do with more money. And so I think there are solutions out there, and, but I think we've got to get back to listening to the people who actually work in the system and start talking to them about how we can improve it. 100%. Very quickly, this is a question coming from a listener that I'll pose to you because we're quickly running out of time. Lots of controversy about where new schools will be built. We know outside of infrastructure in the budget, only $12 million for human resources related matters. But now, seemingly out of nowhere, a high school for Portugal Cove St. Phillips uh, instead of Paradise, was, which was at the top of the list forever. A PC government would build a high school in Paradise first, yay or nay? Patty, for me, it's all about the data and it's all about making sure that we have evidence-based decision-making. And that's where governments run into trouble. When governments make decisions that are not based on evidence or not based on criteria that is, that is in front of them and recommendations that are in front of them, they run the risk of, polit- of it becoming a political issue and pitting one community against the other. And that's not where we need to go as a province. It's not where we need to go as a government. And what we need to do is give people reassurance that when we look at need, it's going to be based on research, it's going to be based on analysis, and it's going to be based on evidence. And that's what people want. They want a government that's going to make decisions based on evidence, not based on politics. Good to have you on the show, Tony. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Tony Wakeman, the PC member for Stephenville Porter Porter, and of course, along with Lloyd Parrott and Eugene Manning, vying to be the next leader of the PC party. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.